flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million albums. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. Hello, cats and like kittens, and welcome to another very special episode of the Debrief. I apologize for my hiatus last week. I was still readjusting, getting back into the swing of things post-vacation, but I am very eager to hear all of your thoughts and feelings by the last couple of episodes here at Bad Faith. Of course, last week I spoke to Katie Halper about the Red Wedding and the controversy over what obligations news and media figures who have personal relationships with each other have to disclose those relationships, not hang out with each other as a consequence of those relationships, etc. And of course, today's episode with Thomas Chatterton Williams, author, public intellectual, uh, bet noir of much of left uh, Twitter about the debate that he had with Jamel Bowie, which is reflective of a, a bigger debate that's been happening on the internet about how the killing uh, on the F train in New York now a couple of weeks ago uh, is being characterized and it continues to be characterized as there are new developments in the case, including the charging of the perpetrator, uh, Daniel Penny. So I'm sure people have a lot of thoughts, feelings and questions. This is a episode that's unique insofar as it is also being live streamed on YouTube. So if you are a typical listener of the debrief on Colin, you should know that you can also watch this episode um, by going to Bad Faith YouTube. Don't forget to like and subscribe, etc. And if you are watching on Bad Faith YouTube and you would like to participate by doing what the show is all about, which is calling in and asking questions and giving your thoughts, feelings and beliefs about whatever is going on, including and also in addition to what we've talked about on recent episodes, you can do that over at the Colin app. The show is called The Debrief, and I am happy to hear your questions. So let's see how this goes. Uh, let's see who's in the queue. Neoliberal Tears, what's on your mind tonight? Oh, my God. I'm first. What am I <laughs> I didn't, I did, I did not plan this. Hey guys. Um, actually, I should have crashed the party. What am I doing? I have powers. Um, how are you doing? How's your night going? I'm doing I'm well. Doing- I'm doing well. I found myself with a little bit of extra time on my hands. So I might come to regret this, but I took the time to try to set my camera up in a different part of my apartment so I could re- recapture the comfort and casual atmosphere that we always have on these debriefs. Um, and so it can feel a little bit different than bad faith. But I somehow feel like the having the visual in addition to the audio is setting myself up for a world of trouble in terms of click, clipability and dragability on the internet. But we'll, we'll see how this goes. Okay, let's put it out there. If anybody out there, any troll out there who's thinking about clipping this, you, I mean, you'll be cursed. Okay, we are prejudging you right now. Um, you'll have horrible luck for the rest of your life. So. <laughs> Stop. Neoliberal Tears, I'm hearing from the folks the folks who are watching that you are not loud enough. They're also saying that my audio isn't great. So let me just make sure that the settings are capturing all of the audio from the soundboard. It looks like it is. Oh, nope. Wait a minute. Okay. Everybody let me know if that's better on YouTube. I think that was just a, an issue on my end of things, but okay. Uh, shoot with your question, neoliberal tears. So 
I had a Liz Wolf question. I mean, <laughs> amazing show. Oh, boy. I mean, I kind of almost appreciate her at this point because, like, I'm sh if you saw the comments on the... Um, on your polling segment with RFK Jr., it was amazing. Everybody pointed out her coke, uh, the coke connections to the Reason Foundation. You know, so it's almost like she's making you look so good. I mean, I how can I how can I be against that? You guys are so messy. Look, for those of you who don't know what Neil Libertiers is referring to, Robbie was out sick today, so we had a guest host, uh, Liz Wolf, on Rising. Liz Wolf also writes at Reason and is also libertarian. But, you know, people are different. And although she shares those qualities with Robbie, she had a number of different opinions that I think were pretty clearly going to be out of step with what the audience preferences are over at Rising. Say what you will about Robbie and myself and the show and whether or not you believe in the project there, but we have developed a rapport over time and a kind of mutually understood, uh, understood understanding of what the audience is and what they're all about. And it was unsurprising that her critique of RFK Jr., which in so many ways paralleled the broader liberal critique of RFK Jr., basically kind of sidestepping what his appeal is to so many people and focusing on the you know, anti-vax nature of it all. Uh, was not going to go over well. And so, I loved, I mean, my favorite part, I mean, it went, in a way, it went very well. Um, my favorite part was when she said, oh, and, he's, and he called to jail the Koch brothers, you know, for <laughs> promoting all of this, like, anti-climate change stuff. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, you know, Liz. Yeah, you know, don't, don't threaten me with a good time, you know. <laughs> oh, Liz, you know what? I'm, I'm, I, wh how are you, like, what's your schedule like? <laughs> like, you know, this is great. Because <laughs> she, and you look, I mean, I'll just read my, can I read my favorite comment? Um, sure. Okay, 403 likes. Finally, I agree with Bree. Good job on pushing back on the talking points. Um, and then another one, uh, Liz should disclose that her employer is funded by Coke, but that would require credibility, 500 likes. Um, oh, but, but if I could, um, ask you, uh, steal another question from you. Um, yeah, please. Cause I feel like she didn't touch on what you tried to get the, I mean, the clip was so good. It was about RFK Jr. For those who didn't see it, um, I'll put the link in the chat and also shame on you. Um, he talked about uh, the superdelegate mechanism and mm -hmm. how he believes that 100% of them would go for Biden. Mm -hmm. And I almost, appre I almost, I appreciated the honesty, but mm -hmm. also what are we doing here? So, <laughs> you know, well, what, how do you what answer do you that question? Because that, that gets to the heart, the what are we doing here piece of it gets to the heart of, I think, a lot of why people have been divided on the how much to invest in the Democratic primary or the election, generally speaking, question. Because I think there is a broad acknowledgement and agreement by everyone, including RFK Jr. himself, who is running in the race and obviously sees it to, as, as a worthwhile project, despite being very, very well aware of this. There is this awareness that the system is rigged. The Democratic Party is going to do what it's going to do, in, including shutting down primaries, perhaps weaponizing superdelegates, all of those kinds of things to prevent him from being president. So I think what frustrates me when we're having this electoralism conversation is that people say things like, well, but don't you know? Don't you know that's rigged? And don't no, you know no. it's like, Girl, yes, ma'am. You know. If anybody knows <laughs> I worked for the Bernie 2020 no, campaign. No, no. I was there. We all know. Mm -hmm. The you question know. is you know. why it is that some people feel like it's still a worthwhile project and some I, I people think, don't. 
Here's what I, I, I thank you for asking me. Oh my God, I've been dying <laughs> to tell you. So I think, and I've been saying this for a while, I think it's good that Marianne is having some competition. Mm. I think everyone can agree on that. So the idea of like participating in the Democratic Party or not that, like in, a, in, in general, it's, it's a very good thing. Look at us. We're all talking about the CIA and his uncle and his dad and like, mm -hmm. it's great for the discourse. No one, no one can say it's not. So I'm glad she's having competition especially with her anti-war, uh, sorry, with her um, positions on war and Ukraine and all that mm -hmm. stuff. I think it's good. It's, it's putting it out there in the light. And I, and I, and I, th I think everyone agrees, but uh, uh, RFK is also showing a willingness to go against um, uh, established orthodoxy in a way that's very courageous. Um, and uh, does post like, I think on the messaging, he has me. Like mm. I'm, I'm, I'm totally sold. I know I'm embarrassed. I thought I'd never vote for a Democrat again. I mean, it's, I'm ashamed, <laughs> but like, um, so I feel like with Marianne, we weren't quite there. Mm. And, and, but I feel like the question for me is now that we are and like, okay, his messaging on Ukraine, his podcast, by the way, with Max Blumenthal was amazing. He knows more mm. about Ukraine. He couldn't stop talking about it. <laughs> like mm. he's like, he's like that old uncle that like won't shut up. I but, haven't like, seen that yet. I'll have to take a look. I'll, I'll, I'll send that to you. Um, but like, but my question is now, okay, so, but if there's, if it's all pre-written, if the ending is pre-written from the start, it's actually like, it is like, I do want to know what the plan is because it's, otherwise you're asking people to donate to you knowing it's rigged from the beginning. And I think that like, if you told, like, let's put an alternative universe because we're not talking about Bernie being cheated twice. Let's say Trump was cheated twice by mm -hmm. the RNC. Do we think those voters would be like, you know, like the strategists would just come back to them and say like, all right, I, we know we cheated you twice, but listen, don't, you know, don't just do it and do it again. Like pay, you know, canvas for us because don't you want to change the discourse? Don't you want to shift the Overton window? No, the Republican voters would be like, screw this place. Wait a I minute. Mean, I don't, I don't think that's quite the right analogy. It's not that the RNC is saying, come and do this again. It's that Trump would say, come and do this again. And I think that many people did believe that the system was rigged against Trump in 2016, that he won despite the system being rigged, and that if anybody could figure out how to beat Trump, they would be desperately trying to rig the system against him now, but they, no one, no, no one can quite hack how to beat Trump in a primary, even come close to touching him in a primary. So the, the question isn't whether or not we should have confidence in the Democratic Party. I think it's two things. One, there are goals short of winning the presidency. There are uh, there are things that can be gained short of winning the presidency. Now, maybe it's not enough to warrant you spending money out of your pocketbook or knocking on a door and taking the time out of your day. And I completely appreciate that. But so many people, including many of the staunchest critics of electoral politics, have testified to the extent to which they were radicalized by working on the Bernie 2016 campaign. How much they grew their organizing capacity, how many relationships they developed, how much how much more um, articulate they are about policy and what they should be fighting for because they worked for Bernie 2016 or Bernie 2020. So, you know, if you don't if that's not you and you don't see any benefit in these people running, hey, I, I certainly have no interest in arguing with anybody about it. Don't support them. Don't vote for them. Stay home. No, do whatever no, you no. think Let's best advances the left. Go to the, I'm, a, I'm a good faith. Like, I'm going to, I want to vote. In the no, 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 I know, I know you but, really, like, which is, I'm just trying to set up. I do. I'm but, just like, trying. But let's say I'm, he's going to endorse uh, Biden in the end. And it's just going to be like 
all just like a big, um, like, I do question that. Like, I, I do want, because at the end of the day, we want, if, if I want to vote for a candidate, I want them to win. And saying that, you know, starting off with the premise that like, yeah, they're not going to win. I think that's a, that's a hard sell. Well, no they're not the starting off with that premise. Both Marianne and JFK Jr. have been very clear that they want to win. But from a voter's perspective, you can't have it both ways. People who are interested in electoral politics are being told on one hand, if you think they can win, you're an idiot and a mark. And then if you say, well, I don't think that they're likely to win, but I think there's other value, then it's like, well, you shouldn't back a candidate if you don't think they can win. Like, come on. Like, well, no, either no, no. you're calling people naive well, or, or not. Delicate question. Like, but, they should look, have an answer to it. That I, I, I voted for Jill Stein because – not because I thought she was going to beat Hillary Clinton in 2016, but for a number of reasons, including that if – Green Party candidates, if third party candidates get a certain number of votes, they get federal matching funds, and it makes it easier for them to run better candidates, et cetera, and get ballot access down the line. That's a concrete, tangible goal. And people who came to me and were like, Brianna, voting for Jill Stein is throwing away your vote. I said to them, well, I'm in New York State. What's, what's surely throwing away my vote is voting for a woman who clearly is going to win the state and doesn't need my vote. My vote can actually serve some purpose if I can contribute to getting the Green Party better ballot access and funding, et cetera, right? And I feel the same way here. Like, if you are very, you know, if you have other kind of priorities, God bless. I don't have any interest in fighting with you about those. But there are very clearly reasons to support a candidate to uh, put pressure on the Democratic Party to expose six into the, the to which they're rigging the race, to pressure them to allow um, primaries, to make the public aware of how corrupt the Democratic Party is and the refusal to have primaries, even what? as um, mm-hmm. RFK Jr. and Marianne get a bigger and bigger slice of the voting share. And to me, those are all worthwhile objectives, even if it's never possible because of superdelegates or any other reason that any of them are actually going to accede to well, the presidency. I, 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 I think the only wrinkle for the, with for uh, for me with that is that by donating your, your time and effort and love to Jill Stein, your your money didn't end up in the Democratic Party. Well, I, I didn't do it. First of all, I wish I had maybe, but I didn't devote my time, money and energy to Jill Stein. I walked down to P.S. whatever on 7th Avenue and I cast my vote. And but then it, I went it home. didn't end up in the Democratic Party. What I'm trying to, 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 to explain is that, like, if, if, if we all agree that the Democratic Party rigs primaries, like, there's, there's something perverse about the idea that, like, they can use someone really popular, like Bernie, and say, like, you know, all right, we'll let them get, get as close as they can, and we're going to pull the rug from under them when we're, you know, when we decide, basically. And then at the end of the day, we all come together and, like, you know, vote for the worst people alive like there's something a little uh like i i think voting for the green party is more of a statement that like you know um you know it it, you don't end up in the dnc at the end of the day you don't end up on a texting list i stole the text from hakeem jeffries because you know like you know because like it's because i donated to the bernie campaign like we don't want to end up i don't know how many guys i don't know how many ways i can say this then don't donate like, please, Lord Jesus, don't donate. I'm not forcing you to donate. Nobody's asking you to donate. If your concern is being on I an act blue list or whatever, don't donate. I hope that deads that forever. We never have to talk about that again. Don't donate. Don't donate. Okay? That's what your pickup is. Don't donate. Well, and secondly, wait a minute. Secondly, in a primary, in a Democratic primary, there's no Green Party candidate. There's no third party candidate. You have the privilege. You have the right in America 
to vote in the Democratic primary. You can register as a Democrat and vote, and then some other states there's open primaries, so even if you're not a registered Democrat, you can vote, right? So you have the option to organize for your third-party candidate, draft a third-party candidate, draft alternative Democratic Party candidates, whatever track you want. I hope people do all of those things. And if there's some effort underway that I should be aware of, please let me know, and I would love to platform it and support it. But right now, talking about what the, stake, the stakes are right now, what the, what the players are on the field right now, the options are, in the context of a Democratic Party, to ignore it, which is your right. Who I'm not, I'm not forcing anybody to do anything. It's completely your right. But don't be mad at me, because there are options that other people are going to avail themselves of. Just do what, do what floats your boat. However, some people are going to say, well, it's literally no skin off my back. It takes away from no third parties, any other organizing ep- efforts, and it does not endorse anybody in the general election. For me to throw a, a monkey wrench in the Democratic Party's machinery, and vote for one of these these oppositional candidates, the Democratic Party, obviously is so threatened by that they won't even let them uh, have a debate or acknowledge them in the mainstream media. That's it. Uh, again, I think that because the Democratic Party is unique and they have superdelegates to begin with, mm-hmm. it's, it's a question that RFK Jr. and Marianne should come up with good answers with because I think people want to invest in something that a shot and we have because the left has been so deceived by the dnc i feel like it's worth asking okay what does what's the strategy i feel like and maybe he does have a strategy i'd love to know um we're probably going to see him on rising soon that's going to be amazing um but like you know something about dennis kusenich's campaign manager now they said something about john kiriaki was on katie's show and he said something about they're focusing on in particular five primary states that they think they might have a shot in. Maybe there's a way to leverage that into an independent run. Who knows? For either of them, Marianne or RFK. Um, I, I just, I, I want to, if, if I'm going to invest my hopes and dreams, just kidding. But like, you know, I, I, I want to I wanna see something. If I think people are genuinely enthused at this point. I don't think we expected to see someone at 20%. You were pointing out that something Republicans, a Republican candidate would kill for. <laughs> like these yes. kinds of numbers. It's yes. nuts. None of us thought we would be here. And, you know, and like I said, I think it's good that Marianne has some competition for her about her, uh, you know, I think it's great, right? Like, you know, now she has to feel some pressure about changing her foreign policy views, potentially. It's good. Um, if, so, If Neela Boutiers, if, if feeling like you're not going to be able to win is dispositive for you and not supporting a it's candidate. Not. Look how exci- I'm sound excited, right? Okay, but Neil, like, I, for, for the royal you, okay, you're obviously advocating an opinion that you believe somebody has. If you don't think anybody has this opinion, then it's a little bit of a waste of time, right? So obviously you think that some people feel this way. If that's the way that some people feel, then I hate to break it to you, but that's also an argument for that people used to not support third-party candidates and not support the Green Party, which I think is bupkis and ridiculous and really counterproductive. So I, I, I'm sorry, I get frustrated because I just now for years have been seeing a rotating bucket of excuses that people wield to explain inaction all over the place. And I'm not sitting here saying that, well, if you don't vote for in the Democratic Party, that means you're not doing anything at all and, you know, you're up to no good and your time is being wasted and you're used. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying when there are multiple courses of action that are not mutually exclusive to each other, and some people are excited about taking a shot at one of those options, and everybody else is trying to talk them out of it, 
why not just let many flowers bloom? If you want to make your whole personality don't vote in the Democratic primary, I, don't, I do not support that. If you personally don't want to vote in the Democratic primary, that's fine. But I think it would be wrong of me to be running around saying there's no path forward except for voting in the Democratic primary. And if you're trying to recruit a Green Party candidate or third party candidate, if you're trying to organize and do mutual aid, then you're wasting everybody's time. Like it would be so messed up for me to say that. I'm so glad people are doing those things. And I similarly think it's weird for so many leftists to be making their whole personality. I don't want to participate in a primary. The general election argument, I think, is strong. Don't sheep her people into the Democratic Party. Don't tell people to vote for Democrats. I tweet every day in a very high-profile way, in a way that has gotten me banned from any mainstream media job in this city, that you should not vote for Joe Biden. On Vanity Fair? Okay. I mean, you know? was, like, <laughs> I, you couldn't I, have gotten more public. I, you know, I I'm it, the queen of saying but, don't vote for Joe Biden, so don't come for me over that. No, no, I'm... Um, I absolutely, I didn't. Um, just want to point, point out for the record. Yeah, no, you for uh, sure haven't. Love you, girl. No, I'm just <laughs> saying I want it to be possible for someone that I'm excited about to succeed. So that's really what sure. it comes down to. I, um, I also, uh, I mean, can I throw a wrinkle in your thingy? You know, there are 24 states, just so people understand the, mm-hmm. the, the stakes. Um, the, there are 24 states that are closed primary, like New York. And like you mm-hmm. said, um, you would have to uh, register Democrat to vote in that primary. But like, but in the general election, you can vote green. So ju- I'm just laying it out there so people can genuinely understand like yeah. the, the choices. So even though you vote in the Democratic primary in New York, um, you sold your soul, whatever, you can still vote green in the general. So that's clear, right? Yeah. Um, but just the fact that you have to register Democrat in a closed primary state means you can't register green potentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then that means that the greens wouldn't have numbers to stay on the voter rolls or whatever. In my state, in, in the Midwest, um, I don't want to say which one because I know there are trolls out there. Um, like, you know, the Green Party was taken off the ballot because, you know, there weren't enough people registered as a Green. Mm. So there is a benefit to the Democratic Party by having people vote in their primary in some Fair way. Enough. Um, so I'm just uh, but but again, like I'm probably going to I'm th- probably going to vote in the Democratic primary and I would I would vote for RFK Jr. over Marianne. Yeah. Um, so that's where I'm at. But thank you for helping us um, sort <laughs> through all of it. Yeah, of course. What would a, a episode of Colin be without this particular subject surfacing? <laughs> Thank you, neoliberal. It's always great to hear from you. Love you, girl. Talk to you later. All right. Keep the bait. Oh, shoot. I called on Jonathan, which I meant to skip around. For those of you who are new here, I usually call someone from the front and then someone from a random place in the queue. Jonathan, you got lucky. <laughs> you I got beat you to it. I was just about to be, ha ha, you forgot to skip to the back of the line first. <laughs> All right, what's on your mind? Uh, well, firstly, uh, banger of an episode today on Rising. Uh, I was particularly entertained by one of the, the later segments where you were going back and forth on the generational wealth transfer, and uh, Liz... Uh, repeated a number of things that were have been empirically debunked for years, including the minimum wage argument that I was taught as a small child in school, which is obviously not true. And, uh, you know, that we have all kinds of evidence from states that have passed $15 minimum wages that it actually drives up corporate revenue because people have more money to spend. 
And uh, just uh, on and on, I was like, oh, fail, Liz. I'm almost embarrassed for you. But, uh, yeah, no, anyway, it was just a, a whole series of, of just awesome segments. I, uh, I enjoyed the hell out of it, except for the part that Michael forgot to talk about Mint the Coin. Yeah, I, I, part of why I, you saw me tweet yesterday, like, who are the best um, MMTers to come on and talk about the, the debt dealing, because it is just too much in the context of a seven-minute segment, an eight-minute segment, to try to both discuss the kind of newsy reality of what's going on with the debt ceiling and the negotiations, and also convince an audience of what MMT is and that it's a real thing. Um, or what meant the coin is or any of these kinds of, or even the 14th amendment argument, to be honest. So I'm trying to have to find someone who can more regularly weigh in on those segments. So it doesn't seem like I've just brought in some kooky leftist to say what I happen to agree with and what is very convenient to my philosophy. Um, and I obviously love Stephanie Kelton, but you know, she's a busy woman who everybody wants to talk to every single day about all of these things. And it's not someone I can have kind of on speed dial to come on rising once a week. Um, and I also want to have someone else come on the show to talk about MMT specifically in this context. So I just am personally better able to do it in uh, on rising. So I'm working on it. Um, but until then, sometimes I feel like it's not even worth broaching the subject because if I can't really handle it well, and if there's not enough space and time to get into it, it just is going to come off as, oh, there goes Brianna being a socialist again and not knowing how money works. Have you picked one yet? No, in some DM discussions. Because, I mean, like, it. yeah, you because, like, you could even have a rotating cast if you wanted to. Uh, but I promise you with this particular issue, this is way simpler than the other stuff once you hear it explained. And, like, once you get the hold, once you get a hold of it, like, it's a lot easier to convey than the 14th Amendment, that's for sure. Mm. Um, be, just because, like, at the end of the day, one of those things that uh, people don't understand that they probably should, and that there probably should be somebody explaining, is that money doesn't go out from the from the U.S. government unless Congress approves it. So you could have a quadrillion dollars in the bank, uh, in the Federal Reserve Bank, and still only what's appropriated by Congress's budget ever goes out the door. So the point of, you know, the mint the coin is basically to deposit that revenue in the, the federal, the Fed bank account so that the Fed's, uh, so that the government's checks clear. That's what this is all about. This is, you know, Michael was right about that part. Like the bonds was never about, um, you know, borrowing more money or putting more money in the economy or causing inflation or anything like that. It's just about the money that Congress already appropriated and approved going out the door the way it's supposed to constitutionally. And that's what the what the Republicans are holding hostage. Uh, and, you know, like you could say invoke the 14th Amendment, have a lawsuit, uh, all that other stuff. But that's a process that takes time and isn't going to work for this fiscal year. And if you want to stop something catastrophic in the machinery of government, like you got to do something. And this is a perfectly viable solution that won't hurt, that has zero downsides, and there's zero reason not to do it, other than some people, uh, like the Treasury Secretary, think it's silly. Yeah. No, I hear you, and uh, I'm working on it. Yeah, like, it's it's super easy, and, like, there's there's a, like like I said, Steve can uh, is, is good at explaining 
these kinds of things to lay people, because uh, that's mostly what he does through real progressives. Um, and, you know, that's why he goes on, like, he goes on Jordan Sheraton, he goes on political misfits with John Kiriakou, and, you know, basically that's that's what he does, and he's available a lot. But uh, he, he told me he presented, like, a whole cast of, of characters. Some are better than others for that sort of thing, but it's worth mentioning Randy Ray was Stephanie Kelton's old professor and Fadal Kaboobs at uh, UMKC hmm. and one of the original gangsters of MMT. He does have kind of a, a, a little bit of a soporific speaking style, and uh, he also is is kind of like Stephanie in the sense that he hedges on any political questions. Mm-hmm. But he's he's really good, and uh, like we've done RP lives with him. Uh, he's good at, at interacting directly. He's good on his feet. Um, no, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you connecting us, and so he could give me that list. I don't want to do too much um, episode planning here while you know on the sh- on the show. But I really do appreciate all of the suggestions that you've given, and trust that I am I'm on it. I'm I'm trying to book someone now. Oh, I do. I, I'm like I could not be more thrilled by uh, by seeing that that whole post and you know that whole conversation. I'm like, ah, oh, finally somebody's going to do it. I'm almost as excited as I was by that uh, uh, that Sirota article, which um, you know the lever article that I think Sirota, um, uh, Perez, and uh, and Cunningham Cook put that thing together where they basically called all those buttheads to account uh, <laughs> that were, were spreading all that nonsense all that time. And I particularly appreciated the Isabella Weber reference because that woman took a lot of shit for a long time mm. just for telling people what, frankly, once you listen to her, like that you're like, that's kind of obvious. Like, why isn't anybody else talking about that? Well, she brought the receipts in January and uh, I'm just glad she's getting credit for it now. Yeah, well, thank you again, uh, Jonathan, for bringing all that stuff up and putting me in touch with so many good people. Did you have any other thoughts about uh, uh, today's episode or anything else before we moved on? Uh, just that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, like, I, I love it when you and Katie team up, and I thought that episode was really good, uh, especially the, the conversations about... Uh, you know, I, I love the reactions to uh, Simone Sanders because honestly, you can't you can't throw enough shade at Simone Sanders at this point. And, yeah, it was uh, interesting. I, so sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say I love the collaboration between you two. Yeah, I always enjoyed talking to Katie. It was interesting because a lot of folks were talking about a different Simone Sanders clip that we also discussed in the episode, but I didn't see anyone um, talking about the Torre interview uh, with Simone, which I thought was more interesting and more revealing. So folks who haven't listened to that full episode, obviously the spicy bit that everyone wanted to weigh in on about uh, Crystal and Kyle's wedding was up on Bad Faith YouTube. But for most of the episode, we talk about other things, including the status of the Bernie movement and what's going on with some of these folks like Simone Sanders and um, how Democrats are justifying not having a competitive primary. So you can find that obviously over at patreon.com slash bad faith podcast, et cetera, et cetera. And thanks as always for listening and for all of your very, very sage wisdom, Jonathan. Uh, glad you, glad you took my call uh, <laughs> and have a good rest of the day and uh, I'll be listening. All right. Thank you. Keep the faith. You too. All right. Now we're going to hop around the queue twice because I should have done that before. Uh, Sylvester, what's on your mind tonight? 
Can you unmute yourself, Sly? Ooh, I caught Sylvester off guard. Sylvester was like, I'm buried in the back. She's not going to call on me anytime soon. Okay, Sylvester, get back in the queue, and I'll try you again. I'll go to Anthony. What's on your mind tonight, Anthony? Hey, can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. Loud and clear. Awesome. Um, I listened to the podcast a couple hours ago on Neely. Mm-hmm. There's, like, um, a frustration I have. Uh, the discourse, there's a lot of people that seem to have no issue putting themselves psychologically psychologically in the mind of Penny. Is that how you say his name? Penny? I'm sorry? Penny? Yeah. Penny? Yeah. Yeah, Penny. Mm -hmm. Hey, by the way, Anthony, am I on um, speaker? Am I on speaker? Ooh, now you're super glitchy. If I'm on speaker or Bluetooth, I think we'll have a better connection if you just hold me up to your ear and do like a regular call. Can you hear me at all? I think we'll have a better connection. I can hear you much better now. Although I can still hear myself from like 30 seconds ago talking in the background. Why do I still hear myself on like a 10 second delay? Oh, you're probably listening to the YouTube. Yeah, turn off the YouTube or mute the YouTube. No, I think you're fine. It's, no, like, can you just mute like, the YouTube I've that's playing in the background? Can you just mute the YouTube that's playing in the background? Yeah, I think it's actually the app uh, okay, catching okay. up. Okay, go, go like, then and come uh, back. Get back in the line. And... Sure. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Maria, what's on your mind? Maria, can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight? Hey. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, what's up? Yeah, I actually uh, also kind of wanted to talk about the Neely stuff. That, Terrific. Um, Yeah, I just, I guess, I don't know. I guess where I'm at is just like, it feels to me like the discourse, or at least from what I understand of it, seems, I, I don't know, this focus that we that always seems to come up these days about like justification and like whether or not, you know, like essentially like this killing was justified. It feels like it, I don't know, like it has a lot of um, overlap, I guess, with all the conversations that seem to come up around cops and like their sort of ability to like kill people and also like, in general, sort of the Second Amendment debate, where, like, we have to make it, like, there's all this, like, talk about, like, fearing for your life and, like, the justifiable, like, level of, yeah, sort of threat you have to be under in order to, I guess, feel like it's okay to, inter like, just commit violence against someone else, essentially, mm -hmm. in, like, a situation where I feel like they're used to at least, like, or, I don't know, like, there should I feel like we've really moved past while I wasn't paying attention, the sort of understanding that like, if you have, if it's a situation where you can leave or like, you know what I mean? Like the sort of, mm -hmm. I forget what that's called. Like an the, obligation to retreat, a duty to retreat. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I think it feels like that. I, to me, it feels like 
maybe the reason, like, in part, why that sort of whole thing has disappeared from our sort of social, I don't know, understanding of ourselves and, like, society is that, you know, we have to have all this thought of, like, well, you know, everyone has a gun, so, like, suddenly it's this idea of, or this question of, like, whether or not you are under threat and, like, that decision-making has to suddenly be much more, like, vague and, like, oh, like, it can include all sorts of, like, threats and, like, you just have to, like, like, I don't, I'm not even sure people understand what fearing for your life actually means in a lot of, like, in a real sort of way. Like, I mean, I've been, you know, like, for a variety of, well, actually, because I've been threatened, like, like, and actually feared for my life, I also have PTSD. And so I've been in other situations where, like, I've had extreme levels of fear, but still, like, not, you know, it's not at all been at that same level, even if my body was reacting that way, because I knew that, like, it was still a situation that I could reasonably leave and, like, take myself out of and not, like, you know, and I, I don't know, it just, it, I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah I mean, so... I think that part of what is frustrating to me about this conversation, and it came up also with Thomas Chatterton Williams, is that there is this line that keeps getting said where it's like, you're telling me that people can't defend themselves. You're telling me that people should do nothing in the face of imminent threat and that they have to be physically touched before they can do anything to protect themselves. And it's like, no, you can get up and walk away. You can leave the train car. You know, Neely, uh, sorry, Penny rather, could have put his body between Neely and whoever was being threatened. He could have issued a verbal warning. You know, you know, and as after doing any of those things, it might have been the case that Neely then engaged physically with Penny, but we'll never know. That's pure conjecture. All we know is that Neely didn't touch anybody that day on the train car and that Penny immediately went not to saying, hey, man, back off. Or getting between him and whoever was feeling threatened or victimized. But to grabbing him from behind, which is a move that I don't personally, I think that's a move that minimizes risk to um, Penny, maximizing risk to Neely. And is not something that someone would do. It is not the most heroic action that I can imagine. Because it's basically saying I'm willing to sacrifice nothing of myself to be a hero if I can put someone immediately in a defensive position that's also potentially life-threatening to them. And again, it also could have been the case that Penny could have intervened and even done the chokehold in a way that was not life-threatening. But that's not what his choice was. That's not what he did. Intentionally or unintentionally, he used excessive force and he killed somebody. And so the narrative shouldn't be, well, isn't somebody allowed to do X, Y, and Z? The point is that X, Y, and Z weren't done. Someone jumped to the ultimate intervention. And that's what he will likely have to pay for. That's what he has been charged for doing. So this, this, this whole, well, shouldn't, shouldn't people be allowed to act? Shouldn't people be allowed to protect themselves? You're telling me I just have to sit here and take it? No, that's a straw man. But the, you also cannot kill someone preemptively when they truly have not even gotten to the point of, of, of touching you. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the reaction of like, well, he shouldn't even like of it being, yeah, of there being some sort of controversy over whether or not he should get charged when like, obviously he should, I mean, whether or not he's like 
you know, spends however long in jail should obviously be up. But like to imagine living in a society where you can, you know, kill some like act with like excessive force in that type of way against someone else who has not yet like committed an act of violence against another like person seems just insane to somehow like how could you want to live or like how could you imagine that type of society functioning where people can just take that sort of action into their own hands under sort of whatever justification yeah yeah i mean it i and i will i do also want to give some voice to the idea that you know it is true that there are some people who are making a maximalist argument on the left that says if you feel discomfort then you are a racist or that, you know, you are somehow like not a New Yorker, don't get how the world works or you're bourgeois or naive. Like I understand that those arguments are being made out there, but I would, I would say that most people aren't Tim pool and most people aren't that version of the argument. Most people to your point, actually Maria have felt discomfort, have felt fear, have been threatened, might've actually been assaulted, all these kinds of things and don't want that to happen and don't want that to be the way the world is. We have different ideas for what kind of interventions should prevent that from happening. Ones that are compassionate and are as invested in the welfare of the people who are in mental health crises or in poverty as we are for our own personal safety, if not more. But I do think it opens up the left to criticism when it acts as though like being afraid on the subway is a, is a badge of honor and no one should care. You know, like, no, everyone should feel safe in the subway. Also, everyone should be housed. Also, everyone should be able to get mental health treatment at all those things. So I want to I just I want to create room for for acknowledging that as well, because I know that's been a sticking point. It came up with Thomas and it's been a sticking point elsewhere. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, I think, what's so, like, I, I guess, also frustrating about the discourse a bit is that I feel like we should all sort of agree on the fact that, like, public transit in most, like, U.S. cities kind of just sucks, and it should be much better, and it well, should also be free, but, um, but, you know, you should feel safe, it should be efficient, it should work, it should be, like, a pleasant experience, and the fact that it's not is not, like, like, you know, I mean, I, I sort of sympathize with the fact of like, you know, I grew up in Chicago taking the red line and like, you know, now sort of living in Sweden with like a very, like I can, I see like the point of like, it's an extremely different experience, but yeah. like, I don't know the, that, that shouldn't negate the question or like the reality of the fact that like, you also should not like that this, this case doesn't while that sort of plays into it, that is not like really the sort of main issue at play in the like situation about whether or not like Penny should be charged with, yeah, like manslaughter or whatever. Yeah, is um, our, imagine, our, our imagination so narrow that we can't, like, are people really saying they can't imagine a constructive intervention short of Neely being killed? Well, of course they can. And they will all, they'll, if you press them, they'll all say, well, yeah, no, he shouldn't have been killed. Oh, that's a shame. That's an accident. But no, there's a difference between, like, I, I saw someone saying in the comment section somewhere, like, well, what if I'm attacked and I, you know, kick out to defend myself and I happen just to hit someone and their head goes into a corner and they happen to die? Should I be charged with manslaughter? That's what, well, can we put our big boy pants on and recognize that, like, a wild kick that results in one kind of an outcome 
and that is defensive because someone is literally attacking you is a very different thing than coming up on someone from behind and putting them in a stranglehold for many minutes, a stranglehold that you've been taught to deploy in order to kill someone in a military context and that you have been trained in all of these, look, all of these MMA fighters and like wrestling experts and stuff have weighed in and said like, these are, these do not seem like woke politics people. And they're like, we just respect the art of martial arts. And we know that this is not something that you do lightly. And it's certainly not something that you do for a long time, as many minutes as Penny did it for. So like, again, I don't, we don't need all these maximalist arguments. People are, people are, you know, conservatives are quote unquote winning this game or making advances in this rhetorical battle because they just keep making up different versions of maximalist narratives that didn't actually happen. And then leftists are sometimes falling into the trap of saying, well, no one's allowed to do anything ever. No, like you can intervene. You can say, stop it. You can leave. You can move. You can get in between someone and, and, and someone else who's being threatening. You can do all of those things. Maybe you should do all of those things. But it's like grade school bully rule one-on-one is that you don't want to be the one that throws the first punch because if you do, you're going to be the one that gets in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think it really sort of reveals, like, I I feel like part of the reason also why everything is so partly, like, odd about the whole, yeah, discourse is that there's, there's so, so much just, like, like underlying just hatred of poor people that like people just and like especially like that kind of like I don't know like I just think about all these like comments that you'll just hear from people when you like talk to them long enough and like where yeah there's just this like sense of like I mean I've heard like multiple people like intone that the idea of like someone going to jail for you know, something that they didn't actually do, right? Being like wrongfully convicted mm-hmm. is like fine, actually, because they probably did something else that they weren't convicted for either or ever caught for. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know, it just seems like people have like a really hard time in discussions, like, especially like, yeah, a lot of these people who want to be so progressive online somehow, or at least like come off that way, have a really hard time when it comes to like, yeah, someone who they find actually like, they like need to defend because that's part of their like political image somehow, but they don't, they would never actually like, like either they find it very difficult to actually like reach out or care about those types of people in the way that you actually have to like deal with any of these issues seriously. Yeah, I, I did think it was interesting. And this is why I enjoy talking to Thomas Chatterton Williams. I, I, I did think it was interesting that, you know, on one hand he kind of rejected the, framing of this as a racial issue or that the the idea of Neely being someone who because of some combined features of um, poverty and mental health and blackness was seen as having less value and whose death did not require any kind of retribution that he was he was going to do something bad at some point anyway and this is how it's going to end and whatever days would have, were going to exist between when he died and when he might've died later, those weren't worth enough to put Penny in jail or to hold him accountable in any way. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, he was willing, you know, he did acknowledge that of course our perception of the value of lives are 
affected by features like race and class. And I just don't, I'm a little, like I struggle with, you know, on one hand, I'm, I'm glad for that acknowledgement. And I struggle with what to do with that in a situation like with, with Neely and Penny, because on some level, like I also agree with Thomas Shatterton Williams that there's a way that this was initially framed in very stark racial terms. This white man killed and, and Neely because he's black. That is difficult to prove so conclusively and feels like an overstatement, especially in the early moments when you don't know much about what was going on. And it felt almost unnecessary to me because the subtext was speaking pretty loudly. Um, at the same time, if Thomas Chatterton Williams comes out and clearly says, I don't think it was racial, I'm uncomfortable with that too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I, I don't know. It There's, it, yeah, there's, there's something it's, I mean, like, I think it goes, it's, there's, there's something like, I, I don't know. It just, it bleeds into everything, just how bad that the sort of news media landscape is and like how people, cause like, yeah, this need, like everything has become just like such a fight and like, it always devolves into something that's like, yeah, feels like, like, I, I don't know, totally like some, there will always be some good points made and like, it feels like maybe something is coming out of the conversation, but then something else takes over and like the conversation disappears and like, you just, I, I don't know. There's, yeah. Let, let me ask you this, um, Maria, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be offended either way. I knew it was a bit of a gamble and I know that I was chasing some of my own intellectual curiosity more than a sense of maybe catharsis for, uh, the audience. But what did you, what did you think about the choice to talk to Thomas Chatterton Williams about this? What did you think of the conversation? You can be honest. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I found it fascinating probably i think i it was definitely like i definitely uh paused it a lot um either because i yeah it was just kind of like i would I, I yeah sometimes i find it difficult to like listen to things when i'm anyways i so i you know and i played some of it for my older sister so i could just like run commentary to her to make mm -hmm. me feel better but no i kind of liked it i i don't i'm not really as online as i think a lot of people in my age group seem to be so god bless you um or at least i'm not online in the right places i feel like i'm online all the time but apparently not where people are actually talking about things it sounds um, like you're online in the exact right places actually <laughs> <laughs> right so i yeah i kind of miss like a lot so it was like interesting to like have sort of the discussion of like framing the discourse from sort of both sides and yeah i kind of i mean i disagreed with him on most things but like I don't think it was an uninteresting or like non sort of constructive conversation in some ways. I think it was interesting to kind of hear like how he, like, it's interesting to see the way that people, like what people choose to focus on to sort of, cause like ultimately like that's really where I think a lot of like difference in opinion actually comes down is like how you frame events and like what you choose to like see as important and like why mm -hmm. and so I thought it was interesting to see like how he was looking at it as like it being really important that there was this like other people who were in consensus to some degree or that there wasn't like you know and like how that sort of played in which yeah and like this question too of 
like his you know how you should feel like that real like the way that he was really empathizing with that feeling of like being uncomfortable in public which I don't know as like personally like I'm almost I'm so uncomfortable in public all the time that it just like it was just so fascinating to realize that people are like are actually like angry about an expectation that. of comfort yeah okay. yeah I, I do think that that some some of the lefties what, what we're trying to articulate is not that it's okay to be uncomfortable but that there is something dare i say it dare i say it privileged about having that <laughs> expectation and that's not that yeah. it, it, it shouldn't be a privilege right when we say when we say things like having access to healthcare is a privilege or, you know, having a, uh, you know, a house is a privilege. We're not saying those things because we don't think everyone shouldn't have healthcare in a house, quite the opposite. But there is a way that, I don't know, maybe there's a better word to use, but so many people in the world and in America never have access to that sense of bodily safety. And it is interesting how polarizing the subways seem to be precisely because in these urban spaces, precisely because there's a certain, democracy, (laughs) like a democratizing effect that some some urban environments have where because of the density and because of the public nature of these goods, like the the public transportation system, you know, wealth doesn't insulate you in the way that it insulates you in other areas. And, you know, I would would hope that that was an opportunity for more affluent people to say, oh, gosh, there really is a crisis that's invisible in other parts of the country that we need to act on and help people. But unfortunately, it too often becomes, you know, how dare that, like, how dare my bubble be popped? How, how dare my security be breached at any point? Let's build the walls higher. Let's hire more security guards. Let's do this. Um, uh, let, let's pull up the drawbridge and dig a new moat sort of mentality. Yeah, no, it it's, it's sort of that, like, I again, not to call people out, all these liberals or whatever, but conservative kind of reaction to be like, oh, we just need to punish people harder or, like, get, you know, take away these sort of problem people instead of, like, we just need, like, to make things nicer and, like, to sort of push money into the public transit system in order to actually... Because, like, I mean, part of the problem is that you don't, like, it's so, you know, unusable in a lot of cities or inconvenience in actuality that unless you're, like, actually forced to use it, usually for class and like sort of, you know, income reasons, like you usually don't. I mean, my dad and my parents like never used the subway really, but like, except for my dad, when he was like going to the airports, we take the blue line, which is why he seemed to be under the impression that it was totally fine that I take the red line all the time. When I'd come to him with like, you know, what I experienced on the red line, he like was just totally like, you know, cause he never really had to, like, he only had to use the subway or whatever when like it was, you know, convenient Mm -hmm. like which is a real difference from people who like have to use it and so and like then there's like the time of day you're using it and all these other Mm -hmm. things that affect like you know how the crowd and the vibe and like the situation Mm -hmm. so it just yeah I think there's just this like this yeah real ability to like not not pay and then to be like well they need like there's like and again like for everything other than like security apparently and like any kind of police or fbi or whatever like if something's doing badly like we just have to take money away from it which like you know give it even less funding because it's not doing you know not living up to like these ridiculous expectations when like no one wants to cut off you know cars and like the ability for the highways to run so there's nowhere for the trains to go i mean it's like right 
I don't know. I, I want to address something that um, where did it go? Someone said it in the chat on Colin about how you know it's not privileged poor people. Here it is. Um, Tell Dem says. What people choose to focus on, this is how unbearably glib PMCs are. It's privileged to not want to be stabbed or slashed on the train. This shit happens to poor people. But that's the point that I'm making, Tildem, that it does happen to poor people all the time. And there's a lack of concern about it when it's something that happens to poor people. That sense of safety is not something that a lot of people in the country and in the world ever have, ever. And the reason that something like this becomes a national conversation is because it's affecting people who are not poor. And what the argument is, is that that sense of safety that rich people should have, that rich people or more affluent people have, should extend to everybody and not just be a polarizing topic of national conversation in one of the situations where poor and rich meet on a subway platform or on a subway car. Yeah. Yeah. And you should also like, there should also be the presumption like safety, like things should never have like have to get so bad safety wise or like the fact that like in the richest country in the world the situation has gotten so bad that the like the conversation about safety is coming up when someone has literally like killed someone else due to like feeling you know i don't know some sort of feeling of threat or whatever is it just ridiculous on its face and sort of again yeah goes back to the issue of the fact that like no one should have to suffer through exactly like being feeling unsafe and being uncomfortable in those spaces but it's like it only really seems to like bubble up to like this elite class for them to take notice when it's just you know fallen totally out of control and you know become so severe that they have to pay attention to some degree and then it's again over an argument of something that never should have happened in the first place for a variety of other reasons and like yeah it just seems like there's just yeah the the privilege to the fact that people seem so surprised, I guess, over the fact that others that you would ever feel unsafe or could feel safe or, you know, that people feel unsafe in this type of public space is, I think, what's so annoying about it all is that, like, it, it's been unsafe for, like, decades. The fact that yeah. it's just now becoming, like, a topic of conversation is a little bit absurd. But, um, yeah, I'll let you uh, continue on. Um, all right. It was really nice talking to you, Maria. Yeah, it was nice talking to you too. But, uh, and yeah, it was a nice episode, I think. So, all right. Thanks. Thanks for calling in. Keep the faith. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye bye. All right. Let me try Anthony again. What's on your mind tonight, Anthony? Hey, you can hear me better now, right? Uh, it wasn't that I had trouble hearing you, it was that I was hearing myself on a 10 second delay. But that doesn't seem to be happening now. So let's rock and roll. Awesome. Uh, well, it gave me a chance to think about what I wanted to say a little bit more. Um, so I was at a, um, a gas station a few months ago, Mm -hmm. um, vacuuming my car and Mm -hmm. you know how, like, um, sometimes when the gas stations are filled, there's like people at the pump and then there's people who like pull in their cars behind. I don't know. I don't know if this happens where you are, but there's like people that pull in their cars. I don't drive. I'm from New York. Well, anyway, (laughs) when all the gas pumps are filled, there's like people at the pump. And there's like people in line basically with their car waiting for people at the pump, right? And okay, so I'm I'm back in my car at the little vacuum thing, and there's everybody. Uh, the lady who's in her car just like not off basically, right? 
and a confrontation starts between her and the car behind her, another lady, and that's drawing attention because they're like yelling at each other in the parking lot or whatever. And so I look at the pump and it's got like a dollar and change, basically meaning that, you know, this lady tried to fill up her car and maybe ran out of money and is calling people who knows, who knows, but she's in like a terrible situation. She's probably super frustrated. And now there's someone behind her holding up the line and they're like fighting. Right. Um, and so I go up there and instead of trying to break them up, I mean, no one says I had to do anything, but I just, I slid my own card and was like, you know, fill up your gas, just do it on my card. It's fine. And that like resolved the situation. And it's, because I could see that, like, although there's this tense situation happening, you can put yourself in the shoes of all the people that are uncomfortable and frustrated by it. But you can also put your shoes in, in the or yourself in the shoes of the person that's causing the disruption and think, like, why are they in this situation? And mm-hmm. I can't help but think, like, in this Neely situation, I mean, it, what if someone offered this dude, like, whatever snack they had in their bag and some change like why does it have to be we violently stop him or we get in his way or we like i just don't understand why the instinct for people is to like fight tension with more tension or aggression with more aggression like i don't understand why it's so hard to put ourselves in the shoes even though maybe he has some psychological issues or something like the guy had trauma He's talking about being hungry and thirsty. He's probably in a situation where he's thinking about, like, himself against the world. He's clearly tense because he's pacing. Like, maybe if someone offered just to help, that would have helped the situation. Like, why do we have to go to this instinct to just push against someone who is in that situation versus just trying to help you know i don't i don't understand that i don't i don't even really hear anyone offering that as, as a scenario it's like we could have choked him to kill him and he deserved it or we could have choked him till he wasn't dead and that would have been a better response or we could have like i don't know there doesn't seem to be anyone offering like what else other than that kind of confrontation could have happened you know yeah i mean so what i do think that to steel man this a bit we have to be honest about the fact that this isn't exactly a scenario where the system failed him per se i mean he 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 was a tough case you know he had been arrested and given what what was it like um you know alternatives to jail time by doing these kind of um, rehabilitative programs and then he hadn't checked in when he was supposed to check in and there was a warrant out consequently and you know there were there were layers of the social safety net that had been kind of slid under him and that he for various reasons had evaded i won't even say flip slip through because i don't think it was necessarily even a policy failure it was you know he was difficult he was someone with significant mental health issues schizophrenia right and you know it's he you know it was diff- it's a difficult situation and so you know it's not entirely clear i don't want to be so glib as to say well if someone had opened offered him a kind bar that day if someone had pulled a cliff bar out of their briefcase then none of this would have happened because much more substantive intervention interventions had been kind of offered up and it wasn't quite doing the trick i do think that there's something particularly haunting and i i think many of us can be honest about being in this situation when 
you're faced with someone with extreme need, someone who, you know, has their clothes falling off and has defecated themselves in the subway and all of the things that you see when you live in an urban city and, or like the women with the baby and they're crying and they're saying, I want to feed my baby. And it's these like situations where the, like the Kitty Genovese effect has everybody sitting there commuting, watching this display of need. And it's like, well, do you know some? Do you have a, something that you can give to somebody, whether it's money or food, on your person? How many of us get up off the train and say, "Come with me," and we're going to get up for the next stop and get some food and then arrange lodging and get our cell phones out and start calling social workers? I mean, if, let's be honest with ourselves. Few to none of us actually do anything of the sort. Um, and so I think that that's part of what some of the conservative pushback is that the rhetoric of, well, if someone had just gotten him a kind bar is pushing up against the reality that most of us don't intervene anywhere near what the level of need is when we encounter it in the subway in those kinds of ways. And yeah, what does it I do to us as a society to, to be exposed to that level of need? It, it's, 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 I, think it, I think it hurts us. I think it hurts our ability to be ethical and to live and have a sense of community and value each other's lives when we are in situations all the time, when we're obviously demonstrating that we don't value each other's lives because we're allowing people to moan and cry and wail and make demands like the ones that Neely was making on the train and ignore them. Like, I'm just trying to be honest about it. It's, 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 it's horrible. And we yeah. all just we live like that. Everyone who lives in a big city lives like that. And it takes a toll on all of our ethics and our senses of self and personhood. And obviously it's the people who are suffering primarily, but you know, there's like this collective psychic effect that is horrific. And even if you don't care about homeless people, you know, to live in a city, like it's like, I think that that's a destructive societal effect for us to be, we become, we become like monstrous in that situation in our inaction. I think it's fair. I, I live in a city and I live in the city and I encounter homeless people all the time. And most of the time I don't do anything mainly because I don't keep cash because, you know, it's modern era. I keep a card. Yeah. Um, if I was in that gas station situation and the only way to bail her out would have been cash, then I probably wouldn't have done anything and they would have continued to fight. Like, I think yeah. all that's fair. What frustrates me is that as people are, game theorying these scenarios out, I rarely hear any imagination on positive interventions or de-escalation options, but I hear a lot of, like, theorying on other physical yeah, interactions. Sure. Like, like, I understand if no one does anything, like, most of the time we don't do anything, right? I, I totally get that. I'm not saying any one on that train was obligated to do anything. I know some people have said that, but I'm not. But if you're going to say, like, if you interject, you could have done X, Y, Z, why is X, Y, Z always some kind of, like, confrontation physically with that person? Why no, Like, no one seems to be offering anything other than that, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, I mean, the reason what people would say is that because the imminent concern was that he was being physically threatening. You know, it, there seemed to be an escalation, vocal escalation, physical escalation, jerky moves, whatever it was that made people feel like some kind of physicality was imminent. Something that was not going to be deterred by here's some food 
potentially. In which case, you know, I'm, I'm really not against the idea of just like being a human barrier. You know, if, if someone wants to get involved physically, then I think step one is being a human barrier, just getting getting between the two people who are about to fight or be attacked or whatever it is. Um, so I, I, I don't know, like, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I also, I don't want to ignore the extent to which, like, there were many efforts made with Neely, right? He was on the top 50, the list of the 50 most kind of difficult hard cases uh, of homelessness in New York. New York's a big city with a lot of homeless people. That's a pretty significant, um, you know, list to be on. And that, of course, I'm not, I'm not bringing that up to say what Neely did, sorry, what Penny did was proportionate and appropriate. But to say that, you know, I don't want to be so blasé about the idea that it could have been the case. It, it could have felt so that physicality was so imminent that it was worthwhile to put some some distance between Neely and, and the other people, either by them getting off the train or by somebody interceding on their behalf, but not starting the physical confrontation. And that just seems to me like to be a no brainer. And it's crazy to me. I don't think I've ever heard a single conversation of anybody talking about this ever where it was brought up that someone should just stand between Neely and whoever he was threatening. Like that's just has not been an option. No, I to don't your point about how all the options seem to be about strangling more, strangling less. Like to me, like no one's ever brought up, well, maybe you should just stand between two people who are about to fight. Yeah. I, I mean, part of the problem could be who are saying, you know, the police aren't doing enough, whatever the, subways aren't being kept safe enough and so we have to take it into our own hands um but it, there and there's probably a lot of examples in the media and et cetera, et cetera, about what taking it into your own hands means so perhaps we have examples of how to act there like chokeholds and etc conversely though we're also saying that the social safety net and our other social services resources are failing but we're not giving examples of how we can take that into our own hands you know what i mean like we don't have a good, like a lot of people talk about de-escalation, but how many of us know anything about what de-escalation in that kind of situation with a person that has disorders or whatever is like, this is just like something we don't ever discuss or educate ourselves on or educate each other on. And so we go into these situations and our only thought is do nothing or confront physically, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that if, you know, if people, if there were, if it seemed like there were more, you know, if there was some number that we all, if there were some resources that we were all aware of, there would, there would also be more interventions in the cases that I was describing before, where people are clearly in need. I think that all, like a lot of people are not heartless. They're just feel like overwhelmed by the scope of the problem and unclear about what there is to actually uh, do about it. Yeah, that's fair too. Yeah. yeah. Look, I appreciate you calling in. I've been very yep. negligent um, of the super chat. So thank you, Anthony. Keep the faith. Yep. Have a good one. Uh, I'm going to read. Um, Michael asks, how do you call in? There is a link that is on my Twitter at Bree Bree Joy that you can click on and get in the queue, Michael. Uh, Man Samsung says, I am a retired Marine, 
And he knew a chokehold is extremely dangerous because Marines are trained not to apply a chokehold for as long as he did, unless the man was threatening people with a lethal weapon, many exclamation points. Thank you for that, Mansom. Um, and you then followed up saying you don't read your super chats, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. My apologies. I have rectified that now. Okay. All right. Let's get to it. Uh, Levi, what's on your mind tonight? Hey there. Howdy. Um, what are you thinking about this evening? Oh, um, I think it was, uh, the, well, I've forgotten her name already. The, uh, the girl that was speaking a couple of callers before. Maria? Maria, yeah. Maria. I felt very close to Maria's um when she was just when she was pausing a lot because I thought that's pretty much the situation summed up as eloquently as it could be. You know, mm. um I don't I I find that you're 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 huge you're totally you're absolutely capable of thinker and speaker. It feels like a um like a like a cycle that we're trapped in, like a mm. conversation that doesn't go very far. So I don't think I have much to add to it. I just feel like it's going to happen again, mm. and um, we'll have the same conversation again. And you, the answers are fairly obvious, but there obviously isn't. Um, you know, the sentiment on the whole uh, can, be, I suppose, be educated uh, over time. By conversations like this, I'm sorry, I'm out of breath in the bookstore. I'm trying to get settled. I just went up a few steps, a few uh, flights of steps there. Um, That's okay. We have all been there. <laughs> I am wheezing. I am so sedentary during the whole, um, just for too long. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it feels like we're going around and around, and it's always, it's just, you know, some people have. Uh, hurt by it and some people seem so callous but on the whole I mean I think it's a reflection of where we are and um, as a country and it, it is obviously everything's exacerbated by the fear of uh, guns but this hatred of poor people and the lack of uh, reasonable uh, you know just public facilities in all sorts of ways like just infrastructure and uh, you know how we go around and commute uh, in America is is deeply flawed so there's a different situation than Europe in that regard mm. but the the particular hatred of the poor I mean I'm really I'm sensitive to that I see it everywhere but I don't know that I have anything to offer up other than how I feel about it and so mm. I, I won't but I, I do get frustrated because I'm listening to like different um, online sources like I've had neoliberal tears in several places now I feel like I'm getting to know all these audience members mm. and they, they probably know my name and it's uh, you know I listened to let's say Sabi Sabs last night for example mm. and you were talking earlier to neoliberal tears about the whether or not people should run and it was a very sort of I didn't catch hear all of that um because my uh, I had to stop but I usually I wanted to listen but it got me really kind of sh shaken up emotionally because I was like there's no uh, I think it was Noel who's like a frequent caller almost like co-host Noel mm. who I usually agree with uh, on lots of her takes but it was just it kind of like pushed out um it seemed to like draw a line and say like, you know, only black people can speak to this. Like it was like, why are we giving money and time to people who don't understand our predicament, which is what you're talking to neoliberals about at the beginning, right? Of the mm -hmm. calling. Mm 
And, you know, and then I listened to like do dissidents uh, talking about you and K after watching you and K. Um, I, I saw them talking about you from a class point of view and mm-hmm. they were saying they were drawing a parallel between their class position and race positions and how you cannot talk about someone else's experience right yes you can understand it intellectually but you don't know what it's like to have grown up really poor mm-hmm. and so there's a barrier being there's a line being drawn in that kind of experiential id politics line that's saying like well if you're going to tell me i can't speak about race i'm going to tell you you can't speak about class uh no one can speak for anyone else and you know they're all <laughs> you know you're 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 pmc and ke didn't understand the class discourse at all like she was confused by it right in her conversation with you um legitimately she was saying she was confused by it and i felt you had a better handle on how to speak about it but the right to speak about it is what due dissidence was pointing out and i just feel like as i listen to all of these uh different points of view um you know through these interwebs i <laughs> um, i'm not sure what what where I'm going with it, I'm I'm kind of like, I don't want to take sides against it. It doesn't make sense to take sides. I've found you to be, uh, I, I wouldn't say don't talk about class just because you're not in this class. You, you used the, um, the idea that you're a class traitor as a way to sort of explain your point of view. Like that's how you feel. Mm-hmm. But obviously when you have conversations with people with different, academic backgrounds it, that really is where the difference clicks or like if you're at a pie and there are people that can't keep up with you in conversation because they haven't gone to school in the same way or don't know the same sort of things they haven't got well, a there's general... plenty of people i have gone to school with who i won't say can't keep up with me but aren't especially uh verbally dexterous shall we say and plenty of people who <laughs> yeah. haven't who are phenomenal you know, I think yeah, yeah, of course, so many of, of my critics right now are phenomenal podcasters and are really interesting. And I've listened to their content for a long time because I think they synthesize ideas really beautifully and are really compelling and interesting to listen to, which is why, you know, some, some of their takes are frustrating. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I've, I've want, I've, you know, platformed them and had them on and wanted to have them on rising and all those sorts of things precisely because I find so much value in what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I noticed that you, I mean, I think you uh, fancy yourself that kind of person that can go to the wedding with Marianne officiating and all of that and uh, try to have a conversation across the lines, which shouldn't be that thick <laughs> to um, RBN and stuff like that and Savvy and everyone. And it's just, uh, I, yeah, I think it's, I think that's the great, great thing to try to do. It's just, um, uh, and anyway, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not a great synthesizer, as you said, sorry, of all of these things. I'm more or less um, like just hearing them all and feeling things as it, as it goes. And it's it's kind of a confusing moment. But I look at it like America's in a confusing place. And that's why I say Marie is pausing and sort of that's the most eloquent way of putting it. It's like, I'm not sure that there's an easy answer here. Um, we're definitely in a situation as a country in america that that is that's messed up and i don't think i think it's good to talk through it but i don't think we're it gets us anywhere quickly and that's the frustration and there are so many sort of pertinent points of view i thought your guest had more um he he had more he carried more uh weight with me than i expected mm. uh, in his reasonableness and basically agreeing like look if the person gets found guilty of manslaughter then 
you know, I, I couldn't disagree with him there, I guess, you know, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, think but... it's, it's, I think it's worth pointing out that there's a, there's a big difference between Thomas Shatterton Williams as much as he kicked the hornet's nest on Twitter last week and, you know, Tim Pool. I mean, there are yeah. fully people celebrating Penny <laughs> yeah. as a hero. Yeah, I don't And who were saying it was a, not just he shouldn't be accountable for killing Neely, but that it was a good thing that he killed Neely. And yeah. a million dollars has been raised for his defense fund. And Ron DeSantis is raising money for him and saying that he's courageous and a good Samaritan. Yeah, that's indicative of the state of the situation then, isn't it, in the country? I mean, that he gets so many ears. I can't listen to that because it's just, it's not something I tell, it's not someone I, I don't need to hear more than like a thumbnail. I don't need to, I just, I know that the person's going to take that take and I'm, so I'm not going there. So I hang out more in the left space and get frustrated by the internecine struggles there. But um, I will have to say just about the, um, about the primaries, you know, um, I I really felt neoliberal to 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 be kind of um, pretty much saying what I wanted to say. I was here from like second or third call in person, and I wanted to say, yeah, I'm surprised myself. But um, RFK was very, very. Uh, there's something about what he's saying that's very different from what Mariam is saying. Mm. That's just making a much more of an impact on me on a visceral level mm -hmm. and intellectually. And it's not. It's just. It's pulling out the. Did you see the Russell brand? The long. Uh, we we discussed here? a clip of it on Rising today, uh, but I haven't watched the full interview. Also, uh, I, through no fault of your own, one? Levi, the people on YouTube are saying they're struggling to hear you, and I have you turned all the way up. So if there's any way you can just project a little bit oh, more, certainly. that might be helpful. Sorry. Yeah, I have a quiet voice. Sorry, I guess. Um, yeah, I felt that um, you know burned by Bernie. Uh, you said about wasting your vote, or there's a lot of, sort of strategy, strategic talk about um, voting in America. And like I, I think I've said before, I'd never voted in my life uh, mm -hmm. in England or uh, America until the primaries for Bernie. I would have voted for um, Corbyn in England, but to my mind, there was never anything worth voting for since I was 18. I'm 48 now, so 30 years. Mm. Uh, I found it worth time to vote for um, Bernie. Um, I do feel burned by it, but uh, I'm surprised that RFK, I think the the content of what he's talking about is uh, an important part of moving the conversation. Uh, you know, I'm saying like America has a problem and part of it is like really knotted up in stuff that we didn't get past from the 60s. Mm -hmm. I think Marianne, Mariam spoke to that where she said, you know, we're we're afraid. We used to come out in the streets and they killed our leaders and we are afraid to come out to protest. Mm -hmm. they, sort of put, they put the kibosh on a progressive movement back at that time through assassination of all these, these figures. And I think that that's good what she's saying, but she, she can't possibly say that with the same ethos and credibility or whatever as a speaker as uh, RFK can. And he has so many inside, uh, so much inside knowledge and color to the conversation and just like incidents that he can recount that it's both fascinating just on its face, but it's also, I feel, very useful for him to say, look, I know what it's like on the inside to be right there, to be right by people as the news is being received about assassinations. And, you know, I saw the first, you know, I saw lots of things, crazy things in my life. And he's willing to like tell 
those things to us. And I think that's, um, you know, I think we need to go back to go forward in a sense. Like everything, there's such a naive conversation around class and race. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're stuck Levi, in. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and move to the next caller. It's not your fault. It's just because apparently you're inaudible to the YouTube audience and I don't oh, want to go too it's long. Sad. It's not your fault. I'm so sorry. I'll try no to worries. figure out if I can improve this for next time, but I do want to respond to you and I'll just say, I think what you're responding to about RFK Jr., I see it too, and I'm responding to it too. Yeah. I do think that the class arguments, both with, when applied to me and to Marianne and RFK Jr., show the limits of it sometimes. RFK Jr. is a part of a political dynasty. He's yeah, very exactly. much running as a Kennedy. He has the personal insight of what it's like to be in the room because he was literally a kid of the president, you know, of the attorney general and the the president sitting in the room. That's (laughs) an enormous amount of privilege. He's from Camelot. He's had an enormous amount of like, so it it is very convenient, right? I see someone in the chat saying that someone who likes Sabi and listens to Sabi was saying that I wasn't really a black person because I didn't go to college and said I did go to college and Sabi was saying, well, am I not a real black person? Cause I went to college. <laughs> yeah. there, there are people who are like Brianna sucks because she's a PMC and, and PMCs can't know anything, but also the real one is uh, Cornell West who also went to Harvard or Chris Hedges who also went <laughs> yeah, to Harvard or Jill Stein who also went to Harvard. Like I'm not trying to be an asshole. No, no. <laughs> but like, you, and you can say I'm wrong. Like I can be wrong. But you're going to have to have a more nuanced analysis of why I'm wrong other than I went to Harvard if a bunch of other people who went to Harvard are your literal heroes. So <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and all, I guess I'm, I'm looking at it from a male point of view. It's like we're all in a, a position. Um, we listen to the people whose voices we find, uh, you know, to be more, you know, I find them valuable. And I listen to those, tune in. But I'm not... Uh, I, I I just wanted to express that I, I I something about RFK surprised me in what he's talking yeah. about. And I think it's a useful conversation to have about the yeah the corruption and and from that particular position. Not so much because of you know it is a class problem and it is a problem that the they can say well what does it all amount to if you can't win if if the pie is just going to stop you. But I think that that's one of those conversations that would be helpful. Like you say, it doesn't. It's uh, helpful in itself. It's intrinsically something worthwhile, but it's not um, necessarily strategically going to pay out right now with someone getting voted in. But it, I think it can bring up all sorts of, um, you know, it can take us back to to uh, MLK and to Fred yeah. Hampton and all of those things as well. Yeah. Levi, I'm sorry. I do have to go. Um, do, it, do it. But I really appreciate you calling in. Thank you so much. Okay. You take care. Keep the faith. All right. I'm going to go to T. Jasmine. Hopefully this audio is a little bit better. Um, T. Jasmine, what's in your mind tonight? Oh, hello. Am I hearing? Hello. Hello. What's, I'm not what's hearing going on? you. What's on your mind? I'm sorry. Are you hearing me? I am. What's I on your mind know tonight? If she's hearing me. Jasmine, I can hear you just fine. Uh, Jasmine. I can't hear a thing. I don't know. All right, Jasmine, get back anything. in line, and we'll we'll try you again. I can hear you just okay. fine. I but I'm going to go to Cynthia. What's on your mind, Cynthia? Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Oh, What's cool. on your mind tonight? Miss you. I know. Long time no chat. <laughs> um, well, first of all, regarding the subway debacle, as someone who lives in New York City and takes the subway all the time, um, I first have to say that, like, 
<laughs> I was cracking up with Batya's take on uh, Fox News just being like, I mean, just like the sweeping generalizations that people make, right? And like I said in the chat, it's just constantly, it is so frustrating because it's just constantly um, uh, straw man's just arguing against each other, right? And there's so many different layers and complexities. But I, I, going back to Batya's take, it was like, it's PMC leftists who never have to take the subway and are working from home. I'm like, Batya, just, do you know, like, what kind of people are on the subway? <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's so varied. And there's so many different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm quote unquote PMC, and I do work from home, but like two days in the week, you know, and also it's not just going to work. People right. are going to out to eat with their friends or going out to dinner or going to events. Like it's, it's so many different kinds of people of different classes. Um, That's the whole and, point of the subway. That's why exactly. New York is great. Exactly. But, um, and just the other small point is like, yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying with like the different elements, because yes, it's like, while it's true that, you know, we should be exercising, like we should be taking into account like empathy and understanding that, I think people are, you know, particularly from the conservative side, I think people are so, I think the correct word is they're triggered. I think they're really triggered by poverty. They're really triggered by destitution because it's just reflecting back to them, like what they don't want, what they're, what gives them the most anxiety about their own life. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to ever see myself in that position. Mm -hmm. So seeing it out there in front of me is so triggering. But the other part I will say in a little bit of defense, like, yes, it is about like, you know, rich people's comfort or, you know, pe affluent people's comfort. And that is something to be reckoned with. But the other part is like, I think the other uh, layer here and context that does need to be taken into account is like the world that we live in these days. <laughs> and it's not just comfort. It really is sometimes about deep fear and anxiety. Like I, I have gotten off certain subway cars so many times because I'm like, is that person going to shoot up the car? I don't know. Is that person going to, you know what I mean? Like it's, sure. it's, it's serious fear sometimes that you don't, we just live in a different world now, I think than maybe, you know, like 1976 or whatever. Um, well, I don't think the subways were great in 1976. <laughs> no, well, well, okay. Yeah. I don't mean, let's say 1952 or whatever. I don't know. You know, like that's true. Um, but again, Speaking to the vibes, I'm always interested in the vibes. And I love this conversation about the Democratic primary. I've been thinking about this so much. And I also was thinking about something that you said. I forgot if it was in Colin or if it was on a pod. I think it was on the pod with, um, who were you talking to? Ben Norton? Was that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and just talking about, you were like, well, I don't want to psychoanalyze. I'm like, yes, let's psychoanalyze left, <laughs> please. Because you know what I've been thinking about? I think that, and I'm so excited to share this information. I can't wait till everyone in the chat is going to like be so supportive and not going to, you know, <laughs> insult me when I say this. But I think that the left has a very complicated unconscious relationship with its own powerlessness and its own defeatedness. And I think I, I feel, I feel like it, I feel like it's this constant toxic cycle between powerlessness and rage, powerlessness and rage. And mm. I think moving up the emotional scale into rage 
is good. It has benefits. When you're in a situation of like despair or powerlessness, you know, think in your own life, sometimes you have to be enraged and you have, or you just have to be sad and you have to get that out and you have to get those feelings out, you know, mm-hmm. but it just keep, it just feels like collectively, we just keep going back into powerlessness and right. And there's no like proactive channel into something intentional. And where I get so frustrated is like, it just feels so fucking scattered, you know, all over the place. And that's not like any one particular person's fault, right? It's, it's really difficult to organize people. Um, but where I get really frustrated and feeling de- defeated myself is with regard to this democratic primary, because like you said, let all flowers bloom. I'm like, it doesn't, for me, RFK or Marianne, it doesn't matter. It's not even about like, who you want to win and who you like that's actually not the point here in my opinion i feel like the point here is to see how you can utilize this moment strategically as leverage for once this is like the only place where we could potentially have some kind of leverage right yeah and speaking to the defeatedness i was talking to your man's um Jason Miles the other day because I had this brilliant plan. Wait, when did he become my man's? <laughs> okay. Not your man's, but your friends. Um, who I found through you. Okay, let's put it that way. Okay. And I have because I had this brilliant plan. I was like, what if we on the left utilize this moment in the Democratic primary to organize a you know, like a march or a rally or something that's like I don't know, we could name it like the March for Democracy or the Rally for Democracy or whatever. And the whole point of the protest is to say, we demand, by the way, how many times are we on here saying power concedes nothing without demand? Power concedes nothing without demand. Where is the demand, right? Like what demand? What demand are we showing? What demand are we asking? So what if we make a demand saying, we demand that you hold, you know, open primaries, you hold open debates, you know, you hold debates in the Democratic primary. And if you don't concede to our demand, we withhold our vote in the general election. Yeah, I think that's that's the whole game. And to the extent that some people are like, well, closed primaries disadvantage Green Party voters or you know, what, what if this became an opportunity to advocate for open open primaries? What right. if this became an, an opportunity to get even New York conservatives on board with opening up? New York has some of the most draconian yeah. voting laws in, of any state in the country. You, but right. you can't you can't build a movement. It's easier, I should say, to build a movement around people who are genuinely disgruntled, angry, as you are putting it, because they can't vote for RFK Jr. Right. right? Like Because if there's an right. actual person involved as opposed to just an abstraction. The same with the with the primaries. Well, if you think that the DNC is rigged, which it is, and you think the superdelegates are a problem, and you think that we should have a primary and the rules should be changed, well, mm-hmm. we only are able to make those arguments right now because we have someone like RFK Jr. in the race and because he's polling so well. The better he polls, the more people say they're going to vote for him, the more people do vote for him, the better argument we have to making all of these structural reforms that will help us down the line. Well, exactly. And isn't down the line what we're trying to achieve? Like, I'm just like, the question is, what do people want? Like, what do you want? You know, and how are you going to get there? 
it feels like we all kind of want the same thing, but we just disagree on how we're going to get there. But I feel like every time we have these conversations and it's like, fuck the DNC and fuck. It's like, we know, we already know the problem, right? Like we have to just understand like, how do we get there? What is a strategy? And for me, I'm like, this is, this seems like a really reasonable strategy. I mean, again, I'm open to like, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, give me, you know, give me a opposing argument as to why it's not a good strategy. But I got so frustrated because I was talking to Jason. He's like, well, you know, it was just like, this is why it won't work. And this is why the left doesn't have a movement. And this is and why, that's you know, why he's on my mans. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, what if then someone else give me an idea? You know what I mean? Like, and again, I'm not saying this is the only thing that one should do is focus their attention in electoral politics. This is a, in my view, this is a branch on a huge tree of like leftist, you know, ideals or political action or whatever. Mm. And I just, I, I don't know, like, what do you think about that idea? Like, is that, is that, I mean, how do we organize a bunch of, I mean, again, the other thing you said in the red wedding pot, I'm like, yeah, people not being IRL with each other is just such a disadvantage because all of the, you know, the energy just gets completely scattered and it's just, people's reaction videos against other reaction videos. It's like, there's no channeling yeah. of the energy. And I'm like, I just feel like there needs to be some kind of, I don't know, like town hall or convention. I know we don't yeah. have the money, like turning point or whatever, but well, you know look, what I'm trying to say? It's so funny. Someone else who was at the wedding. Also, I didn't mean to like out everybody. <laughs> I didn't think it was like a secret, but um, no. you know, I think it was Irony, um Osei Frimpong DM'd me at some point and was like, I, he liked the idea of us being able to get together in some kind of, you know, not somebody's intimate wedding format, but, you know, mm-hmm. something that was really open access to all and was like, should this be dues based? Like, should an organization like DSA be more focused on that sort of thing? I mean, I know they have meetings and conventions, but it's not like coterminous with the world of left media or there are a lot of leftists who are very frustrated with the DSA. Is this something that social alternative yeah. should like, who knows who should do it? But I, I, I'm telling you, being in that room, it was like a light bulb moment for me because it it made me feel this sense, even the people in the room who I've disagreed with in the past, it made me feel like a weird sense of intimacy, like like we could work through some things. Yeah. People who I've muted and haven't <laughs> looked at their tweets in years because I've been so upset with them over like force the vote. I was like, okay, this is a human being. And we're at a wedding. You're forced so, to. Okay. okay. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, Brianna's in a photo booth with Ben Burgess. I'm loving it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we have a lot more to talk about, but it felt good just to be talking. Like it felt, yes. it felt constructive. Yes. I mean, I don't know. People let me know what you think about this idea. In my opinion, like also, what else are we doing? You know, like what else? Wouldn't it feel great to be in one place you know, IRL, even if like nothing worked, even if nothing came from it, you know, even if like, I just don't think that that's the point. And I think that again, armchair psychoanalysis of the left, I think that this is a very obvious reaction to being so burned by what, ha- you know, burned by Bernie, burned by what happened. And it, it's just, it incites such a feeling of vulnerability and not wanting to, you know, take any kind of action because it's just like, what's the point, right? Like, what's the point? Um, But again, I think that a way that we could be empowered is to just really, well, again, I don't know how it's going to happen, but some kind of IRL, getting more people together, town hall IRL, putting heads together, but also like 
trying to think of things strategically in like a battle, <laughs> you know, like how do you, how do you hit the weakest points and how can you use your leverage? And I just, I don't know. I just hope that like we could, you know, get over feeling so defeated because I, I think there's an unconscious relationship to it. You know, I yeah, think there's a lot of pleasure, a negative we, pleasure. that We should not be from. feeling defeated right now. Cause as you say, this is literally a moment of opportunity. Like exactly. we're literally in a moment of love. Like it's not, look, it's not the biggest leverage in the world. It's not, no, the, you, but, you take what you can get the same with force the vote. And exactly. in this moment, it's a primary, it's an election. It's Democrats who need your vote to beat Trump. It's Democrats who need your vote to win. You can sit around with your thumb up your, <laughs> Tuckus, like mad on the internet, you know, or you can well, say, okay, you know, all I'm not, I don't have to, I don't have to get union density to 45% before this plan works. I don't have to, you know, wait till the climate apocalypse comes for this plan to work. All I yeah. have to do is say, hey, Democrats, we're willing to vote for you only on the following conditions. And if they meet them, great. At least they'll have gotten something in exchange for your dumb vote blue, no matter who vote. Right. And if they don't meet them, then this is an opportunity to go to the American people and say, once again, the Democratic Party doesn't actually care about Who's saving closed? democracy. They don't exactly. actually care about minority rights or kids in cages at the border or any of this stuff. What they, you know, they're not even willing to do the bare minimum social policy that frankly would make their candidate more electable because it's a freaking populist economic policy or whatever it is. Mm -hmm to win this is literally what i wrote in my defensive litmus test article in the summer of 2020 mm -hmm. <laughs> and i feel like i've been screaming the same message ever since then and, and not particular well, that well, was before force i think that was before force the vote i wrote that but that was literally what we were talking about you know but, well that's what i'm saying i feel like you know again i'm not saying don't go online and don't raise your voice and don't write articles or don't tweet or don't whatever because that is a place too but I'm just feeling the walls closing in of like, God, this is going to be another, like, they're going to pick Biden and then people yeah. are going to tweet or, you know, people are going to hashtag fuck the DNC and I'm not going to vote. And I'm just like, what does that do? Like, it just, just, you know what I mean? It's just like, it just feels like it doesn't move any movement. It doesn't like get any energy. And, you know, the last thing I'll say is that, um, I was talking to my mom for Mother's Day and we just sort of descended into a, isn't the world a fucked up place right now? So it was kind of a horrible Mother's Day call. But my mom and my, my and her boyfriend are, you know, they're very Republican. They always, they hate Trump. They also, I mean, of course they have Democrats, you know, but they're like, you know, even throwing out, they were even throwing out like, well, and then Kennedy is running. I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. There's yeah. so many dispirited people out there who are so like, wishy-washy Republican or independent or my, I'm like, I just can't imagine like being able to have some kind of demonstration again, IRL in Washington vote like a March. That's literally saying this is what democracy look like you like exposing the lies. I just mm -hmm. feel like there's so many people out there that aren't just disaffected leftists on the internet, but are, you know, in rural Michigan or whatever. And like, my mom's out here like FDR was the best president and Reagan mm. was the best president. I'm like, mm. you do know, <laughs> but, mm. but you know, like they, yeah. there's people like that. So yeah. I hope, I, I don't know what we can do, but um, hopefully someone other than Jason will talk to me about this brilliant <laughs> idea. <laughs> Calling him out. I'm exposing him on his LOL. Drag Jason. No, I'm yeah. Kidding. I'm dragging his ass. <laughs> Thank you for calling in Cynthia. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Keep it, babe. Johnny Gill.
<laughs> that Johnny Gill? LOL. What's on your mind tonight? I, I promise my voice isn't anywhere near as good as Johnny Gill's. <laughs> 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 Jot and try either. <laughs> what are, I, what I are you talking about? I love Cynthia's revolutionary idea for 2023. The left should ask for stuff again. <laughs> That's how far we've come. Lee. Let's make some merch. <laughs> oh, that and force the vote. Always force the vote over everything all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to steer the uh, conversation back to a couple of things I had. By the way, I am now very much inclined to vote RFK just because Liz Wolf spit so much venom in his general direction <laughs> that it made me like him. <laughs> yeah, she recruited a lot of people uh, today, I think. I will say, like, I've been re really reluctant to say this because God knows if I say a single solitary positive thing about Marion Williamson, it's because I'm in the bag of Big Williamson. I will say that it is worth acknowledging what the policy platforms are of these people. I know if this is purely symbolic and sticking it to the Democratic Party and it's about their primary vote, then maybe that doesn't matter as much, and that's completely fair. But I wouldn't discount the extent to which I think that I'll put it this way. I think RFK should be pressured to make some commitments with respect to health care in particular because he hasn't so far. And that's a big issue that shouldn't get dropped um, for the left just because he is saying what needs to be said from an anti-war perspective. That's all. Dude, all he had to do was say mean things about the CIA and we were in love. <laughs> let's be let's be honest. Like Marion, I don't know if Marion's angry enough for the times. Like we're a lot angrier than Marion brings. She's too nice. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I mean angrier. There's a way I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to parse this too. Are we, There's are no we winning in... for me in there, so I won't even open the door to it. Are are the Democrats approaching a kind of 2015, 2016 era situation where the Republican primary base was, where they're tired of being told what to do and they're not going to listen to it? Dare I hope? Well, I mean, what we're, do you mean by that? We're not being we're being told that you know you can't have debates, you can't have primaries, you can't have anything. Oh, and that they're going to rebel and, and vote for an alternative non. Dare to dream, candidate. right, Bree? Dare to dream. Democrats are built different. Democrats see <laughs> but for how long? In... For how long? I a parent. Three, they just wheeled in eighty-year-old Diane Feinstein, and she's on death's yeah, door. No, like parent, how far can they push it? A, a parent of a close friend of mine um, recently expressed how uh, the the real thing that Democrats should do in this moment is perhaps to uh, run Navy Klobuchar. <laughs> <laughs> To solve the Biden problems. I think Democrats have a long way to go <laughs> before they get there. Uh, I, I had a couple of points I wanted to bring up, right? First of all, it is funny how both Robbie and Liz Wolf both claim to be libertarians. I feel like we've got, like, the good guy libertarian and the bad guy libertarian. Robbie likes to lean into, like, the free speech, you know, be nice on drugs, maybe don't lock up so many people, maybe don't go to war all the time. But Liz Wolf gives you the full libertarian economics. She's like, no, we need open borders. Shut up about your, you know, low wages. <laughs> Shut up about your minimum wage. Corporate profits must have some explanation that's somehow benign don't worry don't mind the audited financial statements that are screened and the ceo's corroborating statement saying we raised margins because we can she's like no 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 it's complicated no 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 complicated. <laughs> it is funny like they both on paper are both libertarians and like they both come across very differently i found watching some of those segments today 
Yeah, I I found that to be the case as well. You know, I've 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 um I've done the show with Liz before, and it it hasn't felt quite as um dissonant as today was. I think yeah. so. I'm not sure if it was just the the topics or or what. Um, the RFK stuff right out off the bat did surprise me, especially because if you watch the show, even if you felt that way, like even if you really didn't like RFK because he insulted the Koch brothers or what have you, like <laughs> I would just have framed it differently because I would be very aware that the audience was not picking up what I was putting down. That's all. Like I just, so I don't know if she's just not as familiar with how people have been responding to him or if her feelings are just so strong that she doesn't, you know, care. And, you know, obviously she's entitled to her opinion, but it's just, you know, the facts are widely out of step with what most rising listeners. And I think a good chunk of Americans, according to polls are feeling. Yeah. The other uh, point I wanted to bring up was something that corporate Dems do a lot of with regard to the opposition, but the left kind of doesn't think about it enough. And um, tell me if you agree, right? Um, did you ever hear um, there was like an offhand, I don't know, interview or remark where Maggie Thatcher was asked what her greatest impact or accomplishment was? And she said, like, Tony Blair of the Labor Party, meaning like I changed the opposition and that's mm. my best legacy. Mm. I think Democrats or the left, right, the, the one that we want to exist but doesn't exist because every time we elect somebody, they run away from us. The one we want to exist, <laughs> the one we want to exist, we need to think about what we want the opposition to look like. Now, I think corporate Dems, Democratic leadership does this constantly, right? They celebrate all the never Trump Republicans, all the Bush era neocons. They're constantly pushing them. We need a strong Republican Party. We need a good Republican Party. We need Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and all those non-Trump people. They understand that who their opposition is matters. And they, to, to the degree that they have an influence on that, they uh, constantly put their hand, fingers on the scale, thumb on the scale, whatever body part you want to put on the scale. I think the left doesn't think about, like, we don't get to, like, cast the Republican Party and all conservatives and in the, into the phantom zone. So I think we honestly do need to think realistically about what we want the right to look like. And that's why I wonder about, you know, the kind of Tucker, you know, conundrum. Where it's like, well, what do you want the right to look like? Do you want it to go in the direction that Tucker Carlson took it? Or do you want to go back to Sean Hannity and the Bush era? I think the left needs to think about that. What do, we don't get to like, you know, you, you, you get think? a you get a little bit of influence, but you don't get to like, you know, you don't get to, uh, like I said, you don't get to cast them into the phantom zone. You don't get to abolish the Republican Party. Well, what's your instinct? I mean, if somebody is willing to attack corporate power, I think we should embrace that. Because a lot of, I mean, it's populism, isn't it? Does it's it not a hard sell for people anymore. Uh, well, let's, we should push it to make it real, shouldn't we? So take someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who I had the pleasure of interviewing. Which you did a great, and to give credit. Ago. Yeah, yeah, to give you credit, you made her look like a bog standard ordinary Republican. But that's is what the you thing. made her look like. Tucker Carlson was... isn't in Congress, so there's no, you know, if I'm like, Tucker, have you done anything to make your populism come true? He's going to be like, no, I'm a TV host. That's not yeah, my job. And he's right, right, right? But someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, when pressed, becomes clear, doesn't, you know, would rather have people have work, work, requ work requirements for social benefits, then raise taxes on the rich, 
you know, would rather, you know, will we'll complain about the war in Ukraine, but not want to subtract a cent from Biden's unprecedentedly high war budgets yep. and on and on and on down the line. So my concern, while, you know, there's a world that says horseshoe theory style that Tucker Carlson is closer because at least he's a, a right populist and we can agree on certain things and do the stop Pelosi act with Josh Hawley or whatever. On the other hand, there is, I think, a real danger in people who are sincere populists. I, like, I look at the comments on Rising. I look at them on a day like today, especially. Those people hate me nine out of ten days. But when it comes down to someone telling them that they should be excited because washing machines are cheaper than they were 50 years ago, and they should be excited <laughs> about the fact that they can fly across the country for cheaper now when they can't afford to drive to work. Except that's not true. Uh, Matt yeah, Stoller's going sure. work on that. Uh, I, I'm pre, sure it's pre, all bullshit. Uh, <laughs> Pre-deregulation pre flights were actually cheaper at this point. I, I'm sure like they every part of what so was much. coming out. And the stuff about how the washing machines are feminist. Like, I've read the books, okay? Like, it is it is true that it made um, women's labor less time-intensive. It also made it so that women were expected to do all that labor within the home. So before the innovation of some of these household goods, people would send their laundry out. People weren't expected to cook a whole new different kind of food every day with a fresh meal because you have a refrigerator now and all of this kind of stuff. So I, I didn't even bother getting into that with her because there was no point to it. The point is that I trusted the audience because I know that audience and there's sincere pop populists in that audience who knows that it's ridiculous to be championing the idea that air, airplanes are cheaper, whether or not it's true when the cost of a home, which you need to live is 500%, 500% bigger than it was 30 years ago in the eighties or whatever. So yeah, you're right. Healthcare, I, I knew, housing, education, all the things you yeah, need are not are, are more expensive. <laughs> so I trusted, I trusted the audience and lo and behold, I looked in the comments and you know, they were, they were having a field day. <laughs> they were having a field day with it. So what's my point? My point is that because I know there are real populists out there who are right leaning, like those people in the comments, every one of them was like, I hate Brianna, but she was right today. That's fine. <laughs> Those, those people hate me because they're not left-leaning. They're right-leaning populists. But they want they believe what they're being told. And my concern is that if, if people like Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene remain attractive, then there's no, there will be very little appetite for left populism, especially when there's so few strong voices for left populism that are left. Yeah, but here's the thing, Bree. We've tried it the other way, right? I mean, do we want to go back to the Bush-era neocon Republican Party, because God knows the left didn't get a word in edgewise then either. Well, no, but in a world where there is our Bernie style figures in the mix, where we have an RFK Jr. style figure in the mix, where as impotent as most of them are, or at least there's a Rashida Tlaib here and there saying some good stuff every now and again, I'd much rather have them in contrast with a Sean Hannity than with a Tucker Carlson. We're in this weird vortex where we have to keep everyone on the left is saying yeah, Tucker is the most strong anti-war voice there is on TV. And that might be true, but that's pathetic. That should be said only as an indictment at the, of the left, not a, an endorsement of Tucker Carlson, who, of course, isn't going to do anything remotely anti-war. If, if his pro-China proclivities, as Ben Norton explained, are any indication, and if Marjorie Taylor Greene, who cast herself in the style of Tucker Carlson is any indication. They don't want to cut the war budget. They don't want to. They just don't like Ukraine for whatever reason that that particular conflict, they're more into China as a conflict. That's it. I mean, I, 
I agree with you that they're not really sincere. You know what I mean? This is a Democrat war, much like, you know, it was easy for right. the Republicans to be against Vietnam during the right. Lyndon Johnson years, right? It was a Democrat uh-huh. war. But, I mean, I also think there's a, war, a way in which they make it okay and acceptable to have that opinion. And it actually opens up space on the left. I mean, think of what the left, well, what, what we, yeah, what we want to be the left. Think of how much space was opened up regarding checks. Now, Biden has very much worked to like stuff that genie back into the bottle, right? Stuff that toothpaste back in the tube, right? But like in a world where Trump doesn't start, you know, splashing the cash and cutting checks to people, does Biden cut checks? Does Biden do a child tax credit? I mean, people got a monthly check every month for like an entire year. Yeah, look, I, I honestly I think Trump opened that space up for well, for the well, for the Democrats to steal it. Also, Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, I would put in two different categories. I got to well, say, well, that's fair. That's fair. I think that Donald Trump, for whatever reason, blasted onto the scene with some sincerely good populist instincts. I know that's a kind of a messed up thing to say. No, I think but, that's right. But I, you know, it doesn't, you know, I think, and then I think over the course of his presidency, he was frankly talked out of a lot of them. True. And what he actually did in office was to do the tax cuts for the rich and continue to fund the wars and blah, 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 blah. Right. But, you know, I, I I feel like there's a world where that maybe this is giving Trump too much credit, but that he was conquered by the blob. I think that Tucker Carlson no, think is he was. very right. much in line with the blob and is very yeah. self-consciously and intelligently capitalizing on the populist sentiment to launder his opinions, which are not actually especially populist in the least. I mean, he he's very smart. He does the good lingo, but it's hard to tell with someone like Tucker because he's not actually in office, right? He, sh- he doesn't ever have to pony up, as it were. And I do really appreciate that when... Jimmy Dore or Glenn Greenwald go on and they say they're more left-leaning things, Tucker Carlson tends not to argue and goes along and will corroborate whatever takes they have. And so, like, that's a benefit. Credit where credit's due. The problem is I'm still concerned because I'm fighting this battle. I feel like I'm out here trying to make the case to the rising audience and more broadly that left populism is a sincere populism. But I'm, I'm facing the fact that there are no left populists that are making enough noise in elected office. And so I'm yeah. sitting here saying Tucker's fake and Marjorie Taylor Greene is fake, but who do I have to point to who's real? And I'm yeah, very we have, concerned. We have the same, well, we have the same problem on the right and the left. Like the populists don't really mean it. They don't really care that much. They're not willing to take any political risk, you know, to stick right. their neck out. But our populist, as, a, as annoying as one might find AOC, isn't trying to... I mean, the blobs conquered her. I mean, all she talks about no. is censorship now, deplatforming. Okay. And so is Elon Musk, who's censoring yeah. information about the Turkish election and everything else. So everybody, everybody's a hypocrite and a liar on the first one, so let that to watch. Yeah, but the conservatives are out here trying to do things. Do you know what I mean? The conservatives are out here doing fundraisers for Jordan Neely and, you know – trying to cut social, I mean, so are the Democrats, but not the leftists, not the progressives, but the Republicans as a whole are trying to cut social security, make work requirements, do this debt ceiling wrangling where they're trying to cut all of these social programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, like there is a, there is a difference. There is a difference. If I have to figure out what fake populist to go with, I'm obviously going to go with the fake populist that's named Rashida Tlaib rather than the fake populist that's named Marjorie Taylor Greene for yeah, substantive reasons. Yeah. And so I, like, 
I hear the argument about like, well, let them run free a little bit. They'll popularize populism and we can we can capture the reins at a later date. But we might never capture the reins. And then it's the Third Reich. And here we are like that's. Yeah, but I don't I don't think I don't think fake right populism leads to the Third Reich. I just I just don't think it does. I think Carlson's out here talking about uh, the Great Replacement Theory. And how immigrants yeah. come and they're dirty I mean, and they're poor and they're violent and they ruin our country. Yeah, and so he that's has what it all is. terrible ideas, but he's also sort of a little anti-war. I mean, I know no, he maybe but, doesn't no, mean no, no, it. No, 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 no. Like, Tucker Carlson fully engages in racist, nativist ideas. I don't yeah. need Tucker Carlson to exist to have anti-warness. And that is not a fair trade. You guys have got to stop doing this. Like, sometimes, like, this, this is what's getting really unnerving on the left. First of all, there was like, even when Bernie was going hot and heavy in 2016, 2020, I, I got to tell you, some of this interest is a little manufactured. I, this has been sitting on my chest. So I, let me just get this off my chest. It has always oh, been important fine. to be anti-war. But there's something that's very convenient to me that suddenly this has become everyone's number one issue. What happened to Medicare for all? What happened to health care and a living wage for everybody? Everyone's suddenly willing to say RFK Jr. is great. And look, I. Like a lot of what's happening with RFK Jr., but everyone suddenly willing to say, "I like RFK Jr. the best because of his anti-war message." And screw if he has a healthcare plan at all. We don't even know. Like, let's just be a little bit more measured here and not feel and not make sure make sure we're not being like led. Our priorities aren't being shifted artificially because what's on offer? What actually are our priorities? You know, you know what I mean. It it feels for me to say. Anti-war is such a priority all of a sudden that I don't care if, if someone's also trying to jit up a bunch of white nationalist sentiment in the country. Like, can we just, like, take a beat and realize what it is that we're saying? We can be anti-war without giving Tucker Carlson's racist statements a pass. People, people are shifting from Tucker Carlson was a broken clock who said a couple things right to Tucker Carlson is a great and a wonderful net benefit. And the latter, I'm sorry, has the effect of minimizing and diminishing some really dangerous things that he says. It is, it is, it is worrisome to me, especially if you want to build any kind of coalition with anybody who's not white, how quickly people are willing to say, not just Tucker Carlson happens to have given a platform to some good lefties or Tucker Carlson is a good anti-war voice as narrowly with respect to the issue in Ukraine, Russia. But more broadly, Tucker Carlson is a net benefit for populism. That's a that's a jump I am not willing to take. All right. Well, the Medicare for all issue, let's let's break this down a little bit. Right. The Medicare for all issue. Right. The left stopped asking for it. The left stopped talking about it. Like the thing Bernie did do was put it into the conversation and the Democrats did everything they could to stuff it back into the, you know, in memory hole that as quickly as possible. And Bernie let them. Right. The left let them, all the squad, whatever. They all let them. Like, that's now off the table. We're quietly trimming the Medicaid rolls in addition to that. Like, we're rolling back whatever gains we got during the pandemic. And, like, all of that's off the, off the table now. It all got taken off the table by the political class. And it's, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Like, it's incredibly frustrating to think, like, we put Medicare in the, for all in the conversation. We made it a real issue. We forced, like, debate moderators to, you know, sit there and bash at it to try right. to stomp it down because it was really, you know, getting in there. And, you know, now what have we done? We just dropped it and stopped trying. Right. Like, nobody asked for – like Cynthia said a minute ago, nobody asked for stuff anymore. Like the idea that we're, we're the idea that we we're gonna go run on like we won't vote for you if you won't have. Are you gonna ask Tucker for that? 
I mean, I. Are you going to ask Marjorie Taylor Greene for that? Please don't make me. Right, don't but, but, but that's, that's my issue. Like, look, look, I'm going to say this. Like I don't want to defend them. Like, look, I don't there, like. These there is people. a way. There is a way that this artificial standard has been created that happens to benefit more right leaning populists and leave left meaning leaning populists on the wayside. I could say that my priorities were freeing Julian Assange, Medicare for all, a living wage, blah blah blah. Like, and suddenly. Well, RFK Jr. is not the best left candidate. Now Marianne is. Alternatively, I can say my my best, my favorite issues are freeing Julian Assange, um, being anti-war, et cetera. And suddenly RFK is the better candidate. And so is MTG. And so is Tucker Carlson. And so I think it's right and good that people have been pushing Marianne Williamson on some of her statements about Afghanistan and Israel and Ukraine. I think that's right and good. It is very suspicious to me that there is no appetite to push RFK Jr. to have a policy on health care at all. I mean, the dude just jumped into the race like, what, a month ago? Okay. Marion Williamson wasn't even in the race. I don't disagree with you, by the way. I wish, somebody, again, I wish somebody would ask him some questions. I'm, about not dis- I'm not disagreeing with the criticism of Marianne. But you guys, mm. like, it, it's hard to trust that you guys are sincerely invested in some stuff. Sometimes it just feels like point scoring because it is very weird to me that no one seems to care that this man has no healthcare platform. I like, again, I like what he's saying and doing. I like the energy behind him. I would throw my support behind him if he's the one that has the most votes when the primary season rolls around. No question about it. But before we get to that point, holy smokes, someone on the left should pressure him to fill in the little slot on his campaign website about what he plans Have to do for plan. the healthcare crisis <laughs> in the United States of America. <laughs> Have a plan. Have a plan. <laughs> Lifespans are shortening. Please come and, up with a solution. And, and why would he? Why would he if not a single person on the left is asking him? The same is way that Marjorie Taylor Greene Green and Tucker Carlson get away with performing as populists if someone mm-hmm. like me isn't there to ask them a good faith question about what their plan is to actually deliver for working class and poor people. That's it. Yeah, fair. Very fair. Does he hold campaign events? Does, does the left get a chance to ask that? Well, I, hope, I, mean, I, I, guess I hope to have an opportunity to interview right? him either on Rising yeah. or on this show, and we'll, we'll have the conversation. Well, it's good to actually, you know, take a take a real magnifying glass and look at the situation as opposed to just being like somebody that's not Biden is rising in polls. For, for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's where we are. We're in a pretty desperate situation, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for but sure. Anyway. All right. I'll get out of the I'll get out of here. Uh, I enjoyed talking to you, Brie, as always. Appreciate Same it. Same here. Keep it beat, Johnny Gill. (laughs) All right. Um, We are over the two-hour mark, and I'm inclined to wind down, but also I put so much time into putting my camera over here. I'm inclined to push it just a little bit longer. Also, there are a ton of you in the queue. Mark, I'll come to you since I know you were in the front seat, and then you lost your uh, position because of a technical glitch. What's on your mind tonight, Mark? Hey, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Oh, hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna hop off Bluetooth. Thank you. That's helpful. Can you hear me now? Loud and clear. Excellent. Hey, I'm Mark. I'm from Kentucky, uh, Eastern Kentucky, and whew, wow, uh, I've been a longtime listener. Uh, I, I think from the beginning, I um. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always enjoyed the podcast. It's been great, and thank you for making it. 
Oh, well, thank you for listening. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I had a question about uh, Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny. I, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a certain tendency to try to characterize like um, Neely's like mental state, you know, and try to think about him as being like a schizophrenic or reduce him to being like a person who's only acting on like impulse and thus being a danger to the other people on the train. Um, but it's crazy. It is crazy what Penny did, right? Like that is a crazy thing. Like to put somebody in like a chokehold for 15 minutes, like he could have listened to like, like staying alive, like almost four times during that yeah. time. That's like a, a huge, just a huge stretch to me. It's like just very malicious. And I understand that everybody like feels that, that impulse to like, you know, to, you know, like to shit on him because of that. And I, I want to shit on him because of that. But honestly, I mean, wh- why aren't we asking the question, is, is he mentally, you know, is he, is he okay? I mean, is he, does he have issues? Does, does this guy have like a history of like, of violence or anything like that? that? That never seems to come up in any of these discussions. And it's, it's very frustrating. It is interesting. I mean, it we feels- immediately knew everything about um, Neely's life. I mean, part of that is because of the nature of the system and the publicly available public availability of those kinds of records. But, you know, Penny was in the Marines. You know, I'm who knows? Maybe there was something, maybe there wasn't. I'm not trying to make up stuff either or cast aspersions unnecessarily. But, like, I hear what you're saying, and I, I am inclined to think that and taking an action like that is evidence that something isn't right with you. However, yeah. we don't really need to have conjecture about his mental state to state the obvious. Well, I I feel like the way that they're defending him on the right is to portray him as being like a, a courageous soldier, a person who was here to defend people. And that's like part of like the way that we – like mythologize the, the military and people in the military um, as people who use violence for us and thus they are legitimized through, you know, their their participation um, in this this public project of, of, you know, committing violence against supposedly the enemies of the state, right? But there's like another set of narratives around soldiers. You know, they're like, there are soldiers, like ex-soldiers who like killed cops, you know, like, like went on rampages, like murder people, beat their wives, like all of this, all of this stuff. And that type of narrative just never seems to be, I I understand that like, we have no evidence of that and we don't really need to like, just speculate on this type of thing. But Mm -hmm. I just, there there should be more scrutiny in in that type of direction. And I, I just have never heard anybody bring it up and nobody think about it really. I mean, he does not seem like a man who was in his right mind to me. That is a crazy, crazy thing to do. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think we'll see. Um, you know, I don't necessarily like, we know what about PTSD and stuff with soldiers. And so I'm not necessarily interested in kind of piling on in stigma from a place of ignorance. I think it's yeah. something that, you know, the DA should definitely be looking into and getting a full picture of what Penny's motives were and what his mental state was and all of those kinds of things for sure. And I, and I'd certainly take your point. I just don't know. I don't know how much I can contribute to that. Yeah. But I I do like the framing. I do like the, the idea that frankly, strangling someone to death in the subway who has never laid a finger on you is at least as crazy as shouting and hollering that you're hungry and you need food. 
Yeah. And it's not like he was like singled out or anything. It's not like, you know, nearly, you know, threatened him. I, he, he like stalked him like an animal and took him down from behind. That's just, it, it to me, it is like stomach turning. It is yeah. just a, ah. but, um, uh, going back to the, the, the red wedding episode, um, I really appreciated that episode because it, it, to me, it models like the type of relationships I would like to see on the left. I would like to hear more, you know, <laughs> real friendships, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how you and Katie Helper met, but I mean, I Oh yeah. She's like my first leftist. So when I left the law firm to join the intercept, I had like a two week break in 2018 in the spring. And uh, during that time, Katie had like this little deal going with YouTube, I think, where they were paying content creators to use their studios and put content out. And she asked me and a series of other people to do these interviews with her. And after we did the interview, uh, you know, we're both from New York and we ended up spending the day together. And she came back to my place and we like, you know, had some wine and talked about our romantic problems. And then we became friends. <laughs> so she was she was one of the people at the very beginning of my kind of media career just as I was starting having a real career outside of the law that I met and became friends with and I've been so grateful for her throughout because you know your partner your mom or whoever only has a certain awareness of what it's like to be online and be termly online in the way that we are professionally and so she's been a real sounding board and a rock for me and also I just think she's funny and delightful and so we've been friends for a really long time yeah she definitely is. And I guess I was wondering, like, is there like a, I mean, there's no like formula for friendship, right? Like there's no like means of like establishing these type of bonds, like throughout the, the left community. I mean, it's just organic, you know, but I, I kind of wish there was, I don't know. Maybe somebody should, maybe there should be just one figure who reads like how to win friends and influence people and just goes out and like, it just, I don't know, just tries to bring everybody together. I, I think that really does need to exist. I, I would like to, I, I would like there to be, I don't know, maybe an episode or just general thought on the idea of bringing people together in more of these types of events. I, I know you talked about it a little bit earlier. Um, so I think I will leave it at that. Um, unless you had any ideas about what the, what the shape of that would be. No, I think, I think that's true. I hope that I have more friends on the left going forward, not fewer. I think it's a good thing. Um, and, you know, I'm very proud. I hope that people go back and listen to the interview I did with Crystal last summer where we got a little mm -hmm. testy about Marianne. And I don't know that many people have had that much of a frank conversation and a heated conversation of disagreement about these issues with a friend or an enemy, yeah. frankly. Um, I, I don't know if anyone else can say that they've kind of plainly disagreed with Crystal to her face about those sorts of things. And we're friends regardless of that in the same way that all I do is fight with Marianne about this stuff and we're friends regardless. So I think that people should view me with scrutiny and push back if they think that some of my specific views are being colored by the relationships. But I also think credit needs to be due and people need to not lie about what my positions have been because at no point I've ever told anybody to endorse Marianne, give money to Marianne, knock doors for Marianne, or even vote for Marianne. I've been very broad in my recommendations to vote for someone who's not Biden in the primary. And it's just disappointing that given all the disclosures that I've made and all of my efforts to, frankly, not say things that I believe because I think they would be interpreted as unfairly rigging it for Marianne, that it's still, I think, you know, 
so controversial. Uh, but what you going to do? Thank you for uh, calling in, Mark. Yeah. You have tons of integrity as a black guy in Kentucky. I mean, you are part of the reason why I started like trying to do some organizing. So I just want to say thank you again and have a wonderful day. Well, thank night. you for doing that work, Mark. I appreciate you. Thanks for calling in. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Keep the okay, let's try to see if we can get T. Jasmine back in the mix. T. Jasmine, we really oh, struggled. Um, <laughs> I'm so grateful. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. What's in your mind tonight? Yeah. So um, I'm calling about the 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 penny um situation, um the Neely Penny situation. Um, for one thing, everybody keeps harping on the fact that um he um Jordan Neely had forty one charges or he's been to jail forty one times or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do they mm-hmm. not understand that homeless people in New York City get pulled up just as a matter of routine? Yeah. Like, you know, um, I've seen it with my own eyes. Like, they would just come and just pull them off the road. Pull them off. Um, they'd be in the subway. And some. I appreciate Anthony for saying, and I appreciate Mark as well, for two things that I agree with, for two things that I have done and, and, and have said. Um, one thing is I've been on the subway and there, there have been people who are, you know, walking up and down in the car and I'm one of only two people, me and probably another a Mexican man or something and other people would avoid the car and I'd be sitting on in the car with the person because I know that the person is, is not as, it's just that the people don't like when people who look like they're, you know, they're not here all together. They don't like them walking up and down. They, they feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I understand it. But I can't say that it's fine to assault that person. Mm-hmm. It, it cannot be fine. I've given my my food. I've, I've taken, you know, I'm going to do something for the night. Um, and so I stopped to get food. And I have taken my food burgers that I, I bought and given it to somebody who needed it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've, I've also bought food for people mm-hmm. because you have to be, you have to recognize that people are people and people can be in any position at any time. Yeah. So they should actually have, you know, just have some, some de- just, just have some decent human recognition for the person. And I've also had that same insight or sight as Mark said um, in terms of nearly being, um, sorry, Penny being unhinged because who chokes just attacks a person and kills them just out of the blue? Who does that? And to me that's the the more unhinged part and to see everybody calling him a hero. No, a hero is somebody that helps another person who is in need of the help. Yeah, A hero isn't somebody who chokes somebody's life out. That's not a hero, that's a murderer. Sorry. Yeah. And, and, and and it tells me a lot about a society where the majority of the people would so that's why I can't listen to guys like you know, that Chatterton guy that you had on. I like I, I I'm sorry, I I couldn't listen to it. I can't listen to people who are like that, who see no value in another human person for whatever reason. And I also um, so that's just my two cents on the matter. You know, 
there's a, there's a lot of a lot of um reason why he would get locked up they pull them off the road it doesn't make a difference it doesn't you know that doesn't say anything it's he's homeless and so homeless people go in jail more than other people it's just part of life yeah it reminds me a little of the philando castile situation insofar as he had like a zillion unpaid parking tickets and like violations like uh, his light with being out and stuff like that and so many of it so much of it was um poverty related like he kept getting tickets for not fixing his taillight we couldn't afford to fix his taillight. And at that point, you're going to start to have so many interactions with the cops, which he did as a consequence of having these outstanding tickets and having a broken taillight, that eventually one of them was bound to go awry is kind of the idea. And, of course, he was legally carrying a firearm, and it didn't matter. They killed him. They shot him with a kid in the backseat. So it's not the same situation, obviously, but that idea that some people's lives and poverty brings them in proximity with the police on such a repeated level that it, it ups their, it ups the possibility of a, of a bad interaction is definitely a pattern. And in this case, obviously Penny wasn't a police officer, although he self deputized himself as such. Another, yeah, but, you know, another thing people would point out, you know, he, he assaulted a six or seven-year-old white woman at one point. And listen, I'm not a, I'm, I'm for people assaulting people. There's been a lot of incidents that people have with people on a regular basis. And there's a lot of Karens and there's a lot of, I'm not saying that she's responsible. I'm just saying that there's people who provoke and so... You know, and there are people who get hit unprovoked, I'm sure. But that's not, you don't, and, and, and that's in the past, and you don't come up and say, okay, so that means that now that he's shouting and he hasn't hit anyone, he should die? Like, Wait, I mean, the point is, I mean, it's obviously wrong. I don't see a circumstance where it was okay to punch a 67-year-old no, in the face. No, but But the no. point is that Neely didn't, sorry, that Penny didn't know that. Penny didn't know that. All that matters exactly. is what Penny's judgment was. And the likelihood that he needed to intervene in the way that he intervened. And there was nothing about the factual scenario. They've been waiting. They've been dying for some new fact to come out that shows that Neely touched somebody because then they would all feel very justified. I think even the conservatives know they're on unsteady ground because Neely didn't lay a finger on anybody. And that's Nobody. why they're trudging up all of his old history. But the fact of the matter, and this is what's going to happen to Penny in court. In court, all that's going to be relevant is what Penny knows and his assessment of risk and danger in that moment. And he is not going to be able to draw on the idea that Neely was a serial offender because you didn't know shit about the guy other than he was loud on a train. And I hate to break it to you, New Yorkers will be loud on a train, <laughs> crazy or not, you know, threatening um, or not. And, exactly. and millions of us deal with that every single day without choking people to death. Imagine you know, I think it is. I think one of the things is this country lacks compassion on a, on a, on a, on a, but not just compassion. It's the contempt for human, for, for black people, for poor people and for, for the homeless. It's contempt for the homeless and it's contempt also for black people, black lives, because people were like, they were foaming at the moat. Like, um, I, you know, there's another video that they keep passing around of a black person shooting at another homeless person. Like, you don't you, you don't use one to justify the other like neely isn't a person who held a gun to somebody's head so that he should get shot because he's also black like the country if a black person shot a homeless person send the shooter to jail 
exactly. Was the other point that was making me crazy, not crazy, but that was frustrating me with, with Thomas Chatter, Jim Williams. And many people are making this argument. Like, why don't liber- liberals, leftists protest when XYZ happens? Why, why, why? Because in those scenarios, the perp gets punished. The protest happens because the criminal justice system isn't working the way it's supposed to. There's no need to punish. You know, if, 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 um, uh, I'm trying to think of some serial killer, whatever. If some, some horrible person goes to jail, who's going to jail recently? I'm sorry. Ted Bundy or something like that. Ted Bundy. Or who's the guy that shot Megan the Stallion? Um, that short guy from Canada. Um, oh my God, I can't remember. Yeah. When his ass is being hauled off to jail, some of these conservatives are like, where's your criminal justice? Where's abolishing police now? But people are like, I don't give a damn. He shot Megan the Stallion. <laughs> he shot Megan the Stallion. He can go, he can go do his time. He did the crime. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not exactly. a random protest against people being punished for things that they were proven of doing in a court of law. Tori Lorenz, thank you. It, it's not about that. It's about people are protesting because cops strangle people on camera all the time and they don't go to jail. The, the statistic is something crazy, like only like 40 cops in the last 20 years have ever been convicted of killing someone despite like thousands of people having been killed by cops. Like it's, it's ridiculous. It, it almost never happens. I actually think 40 might be too high a number. It's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. Um, so yeah, people, you know, there's something that's going on that that's not right about the way people see things. It, it, it just, it, just demonic. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's demonic that you would side with and find ways to defend somebody who took another per- person's life, especially when the person didn't assault anybody and you're right. finding ways to defend that person. It's demonic. And you're calling that person who killed somebody else who didn't do anything to anybody a hero. Yeah. There's something there's something not right about that kind of it's like something in the air, you know. Um, yeah, well, it's worth so saying. Another- I do feel like I have to point out that uh, just to, for clarity's sake, Thomas Chatterton Williams didn't was very clear that he didn't think of him as a hero, and that he very much disagrees with people who use that framing. And, you know, did acknowledge that there was this gap in human life when it comes to black people and poor people, and that's wrong. And so I do I do want to just steal man that and give credit where credit's due, even if we obviously had substantive disagreements about how this thing was being framed. But I, yeah. you know, I agree with you, Jasmine. Um, so another point I want to make now, um, you're, I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not an RFP, I'm, I'm not obviously not a voter um, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Canadian, I'm also Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing I can tell you is that, um, and maybe it's because I'm both Canadian and Jamaican. I can, t- well, maybe can- not Canada, because Canada is, you know, they're siding, siding with the United States completely. But with in, in terms of um, Jamaican, I can tell you that um, it's not right to see the genocides and the wars that the United States go around the world doing. And so, for me, RFK is a is a is a good option. I'm sure you're going to say, "Well, United States people need to vote for you know." But for me, um, it would be it's it's not it's not a situation where anti-war is different from healthcare in my mind, because the eighty percent of the money goes to war instead of going to healthcare, to Medicare for all, or, or to take care of you know you know. Um, school you know higher education for all or whatever it doesn't go to for infrastructure it goes to kill other people so 
in some respects, they both go hand in hand. It's not like one or the other. They well, both. If they, they, but if they go hand in hand, Jasmine, what harm is there in getting a commitment from a candidate that he, in fact, does on. plan to fund healthcare have reform with have the military budget? And have him on and challenging, 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 challenge him on that. I think you should interview him and ask him what's his plan for Medicare for all. Yeah, I would what's I would love for to. minimum wage. Yeah, have him on and challenge him and see what he comes up with and and maybe push him so hard that he has to come up with yeah, something. Yeah, I would love to. But I, I would also the, like to point out, I'm sorry, I just I got to point out that the, that is not the standard that's being applied elsewhere. When I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But when other candidates don't have a, a good position right off the bat, the presumption is that they're just bad at it. And I think that healthcare, there are some things that can slip through the cracks. It takes some time for people to put policy papers together, et cetera, et cetera. I would argue that it's worth having rebuttable presumption of maybe you don't care as much about this issue when you don't have this fleshed out on your website or like outlined, sketched out on your website. And he's got robust stuff about climate. That's obviously an issue that he's worked very hard on and very well on for like 30 years of his career. I trust him a great deal in that issue. I think he'd be a wonderful climate advocate. I have no doubt on my mind. And maybe that's somebody's number one priority. I think that's perfectly legitimate if people voted just on that. I think all of that is legitimate. But I do think there is something a little inconsistent with the healthcare issue being such a central one for leftists for so long and no one seeming to even notice that he hasn't said anything about healthcare at all. That's all. Um, I, I think there's there's more than one reason why he's he's a favorite of a lot of people. It's, it's also the pandemic mandates that you know were. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people were like, "Oh, he's a nut job and whatnot," like that Liz lady earlier today. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the 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 heavy the heavy hand of the state coming down on people and him. Pushing back against that, it's, it's something that people appreciate as well. So it's, it's sort of like it's not just one reason that why people are um, appreciate, appreciative sure. of him. Um, so, you know, uh, if, 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 if Marianne Williams, for example, Williamson came out and she was, you know, she, she just doesn't seem very combative of the, 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 the establishment. And I think that's the, the whole thing. She's not very combative against the establishment. Um, that's a shame. Like, I don't know. I just, I fundamentally disagree with that one. Have you watched her? Did you watch her announcement speech? Have you been watching her talk? I've heard her. I've heard her. Uh, did you watch her announcement her. speech? Um, no, I didn't. That, I mean, like, I don't know what to tell you guys, man. Say what, say what you want. Say it's not enough. Say that she gets sidetracked with the woo-woo conversations whenever she goes on Hannity or whatever, and she needs to bring it back to the stuff, the corruption stuff, and that she needs to have better message discipline. That's fine. But I see people being like, I watched a three-hour interview with RFK Jr., and then I'm like, okay, well, then you can speak with confidence about what he said, and then people haven't didn't even watch your announcement address, and okay. which was very, right. very explicitly, aggressively anti-DC, anti-corruption, anti-swamp, etc. So like, yeah, you don't have to like you... her. I'm not making a case, but like, I think that we should all be having informed opinions. That's all. Okay. All right. Maybe I should take a listen to her. Um, but you know, she's not she's not anti-war enough for me, especially because I... maybe because I'm international. But um, it's important to be anti-war. It's that's the biggest U.S. policy, and that's the biggest thing that's taking away money from. Because I live in New York, 
that's the biggest thing that's taking away from infrastructure and certain things that the, 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 the public should be benefiting from, especially since everybody pays taxes. Yeah, the question that RFK Jr. also needs to get is the one that I put to MTG, which is how much do you expect, how much would you cut the military budget? Because again, I'm not saying yes. this is true of RFK Asking. Jr., but a lot of people when asked that question suddenly yep. don't actually yes, have any plans to cut the military budget. Ask him. We'll, we'll, it's a sort of like force the vote. Force, force the vote. You see, you see people's real intentions when you ask them the real yeah. integrity question. So ask him that. Have him on. Ask him all of them things. Every hard question you can think of, ask him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. We'll do. Thank you. I'll do my best. Thank you so much for calling in, T. Jasmine. My apologies to everyone who's in the queue. It's long. We've done two and a half hours. I did my darnest. <laughs> um, we will do this again. Let me know how you guys think. Uh, oops, sorry, glitchy, glitchy. What you guys think of this format, whether you care to see me at all. Um, I do feel like I should live stream more to grow the Bad Faith YouTube page, which I would really like to be at 100,000 um, by my birthday, which is August 15th, uh, the day we withdrew from Afghanistan. <laughs> um so uh consider that and consider whether or not this is helpful in that effort um let me know what you think in the comments about this format uh i might decide to put these videos behind the paywall for patrons it depends on how wild things get on here anyway thanks for calling in it's always a treat i love taking questions from you guys Keep the faith. Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers but in bars stands. Wish I had a million pounds. Wish I had a million dollars. Wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them shit like Beaver Man. Wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV. I should address some of these super chats. I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't miss your $25 super chat, men. Some gun. I read it. You might have missed me reading it, but I read it. Shane, go vegan. Thank you for that. And Candace M. I want a bad faith shirt. Um, I just made this one for myself and my friends. I want to do a merch store, but I need to figure out um, a good uh, shot with a union bug, which has been difficult. So let me know if you have any suggestions. I would love to sell these i love mine it's great okay now i mean it keep the faith bye i wish i had a time machine wish i had a better rhyming speed wish that i could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean i wish that i could spread my wings i wish that i had seven limbs that way i'd hold on to everything and laugh when i hear people wishing for the better things I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. Like this. I wish, I wish, and every time we do it, it feels just like this. Like this like. I wish, I wish, and every time we move it, it feels just like, like this. Like this.
feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the dog is. We would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild in our circumference. Make assumptions, it ain't nothing new. Fuck a mile, fuck a you. I've been chewing through these rappers, flavors lasting low a loop. Young boy student of a better Carolina writes two J's and I'm not nobody. Good times, hanging in the chapel. Waiting for a hot meal, lighting up the combine. Looking for a hot meal, about to start a doctor. Lilac, y'all, silicon, meet it like a tom-tom. Kicks like 808, kicks like 808. I ain't trying to say it again. Okay, okay.